Microphone check. Jocko, how are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Feeling splendid, especially given this this cocktail of adrenaline that you've been feeding me. <laughs> Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. (sighs) Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they are chess prodigies like Josh Waitzkin, actors and governators like Arnold Schwarzenegger, or anything in between, professional athletes, you name it, I want to talk to them. Because you find that at the very highest level, at the top of the top in each field, And across those fields, there are commonalities. And I want to tease out the morning routines, the habits, the favorite books, and so on that you can apply immediately to your life to level up. And this episode is no exception. This episode was a very intense episode. My guest is someone who very rarely does any interviews, Jocko Willink. J-O-C-K-O. He is a legend in the SEAL community. He's also 240 pounds or so, 230 to 240 pounds of lean muscle. He would routinely tap out 20 or so Navy SEALs as a workout since he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner at a world-class level and also trains professional MMA fighters in his spare time. But 
Dialing back to the beginning, Jocko grew up in a small New England town, enlisted in the Navy after high school, and spent 20 years in the SEAL teams. During his second tour in Iraq, he led SEAL Task Unit Bruiser in the Battle of Ramadi, which was some of the toughest, most sustained combat in the SEAL teams since Vietnam. Under his leadership, Task Unit Bruiser helped bring stability to Ramadi and became the most highly decorated special operations unit of the entire war in Iraq. Jocko was subsequently awarded the Bronze Star and Silver Star. After that, returning from that deployment, Jocko served as the officer in charge of training for all West Coast SEAL teams, which means he designed and implemented some of the most challenging and realistic combat training in the world. He also spearheaded the development of SEAL leadership training and therefore personally instructed and mentored the next generation of SEAL leaders. In 2010, Jocko retired from the Navy to co-found Echelon Front. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N. Never knew how to pronounce that. Echelon Front, a leadership and management consulting company, which teaches leadership principles learned and proven in combat to help others lead and win. And this is very interesting because you can view combat in many ways as sort of an, an exaggeration of many states and situations that one experiences in other areas of life, including business. Jocko is, last but not least, the author of a brand new book, Extreme Ownership. That's the title, and we get into what that means. Uh, I am really enjoying this book. Extreme Ownership, subtitle, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win. I highly encourage you to check this book out, even if you just read the the intro and chapters 1, 6, and 12. Even if you just do that, the book is worth many times the price. So check it out. I highly encourage it. And you can find Jocko at echelonfront.com, E-C-H-E-L-O-N, and also on Twitter. I am helping train him to use Twitter. A lot of these guys in the uh, Navy SEALs and other uh, divisions of the military do not like to be public facing, but uh, Jocko is going to be on Twitter. So at Jocko Willink, J-O-C-K-O-W-I-L-L-I-N-K. And you can probably also check out a photo of this guy, which you have to see. And as always, you can find all show notes, links to everything we talk about at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. Or you can just go to fourhourworkweek.com and click on podcast. And you can also find all previous episodes. So without further ado, please enjoy this very intense, very insightful conversation with Jocko Willink. We do get into the weeds and I implore you, I encourage you to bear with us if we get into a bunch of military specifics because there are gems throughout this conversation. And even if you only take one or two away, it is well worth the time invested. So thank you for listening and please enjoy. Okay, we are live. Casa Ferris, Jocko, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, thrilled to have you here. And looking at your bio and talking to people who know you, the number of topics we could discuss are are many and extremely interesting. But I'll start with this tea. What is this? I suppose it's a pinkish colored liquid that you've been consuming and that uh, you've shared with me. It's a pomegranate white tea, which I believe hits your soul pretty well. <laughs> well, I was surprised because I expected it to have low caffeine content. I was like, sure, I'll try the tea. It sounds like, you know, with the pomegranate, I'm like, maybe it would help with my cramps or something. And I'm pretty well lit up for someone who drinks, you know, pu'er tea, oolong tea, I guess sort of a, a veteran of, of indirect caffeine consumption with, with leaves. I, I've been impressed. How long have you been drinking this? I don't, I forget when I stumbled upon it, but we used to do some desert training back when I was in the SEAL teams, actually when I was running the training on the West coast. And, uh, 
I would have to sit through the, the platoon's briefs as they were getting ready to go out in the field and do a field training exercise. And the briefs were about an hour long and we'd be on three or four hours of sleep a night for a few days. And so at some point I discovered this stuff and I would start drinking it when the brief kicked off. And by the time the brief ended, I would have taken copious notes and be ready to get after the platoon commanders that were uh, trying to give good briefs. And I'd, I'd, I'd get after it. You'd, you'd be fired up for feedback. Affirmative. <laughs> and uh, you, you mentioned that you don't normally consume caffeine. Is that true? I do not normally con- consume caffeine, no. When do you, what are some examples of when you reserve uh, or, or when you do consume caffeine? What's the use of caffeine? Some kind of long drive, you know? So, um, you know, even my first deployment to Iraq, we did longer patrols in the vehicles. And I would have, you know, right in front of my seat, so sort of hanging in front of my seat, I'd have a, a flashbang grenade, and then another flashbang grenade, and then a frag grenade, which is the grenade that, you know, kills people, and then another frag grenade, and then the next three pouches were Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull. So, you know, if you're going on a long patrol, and I know it might seem strange that you would get tired, but you would, you know, and, and so you crack open a Red Bull and get after it. And that's the kind of occasions I would save the caffeine intake for. What now? We, we haven't spent too much time together. We've been hanging out and uh, you had an iced tea. I had a couple of coffees and I feel like I've, I've just belligerently unnecessarily punched my adrenal glands for so many years that the coffee pretty much does nothing to me. But uh, you're an intense guy, which is meant as a compliment. What do you like on three Red Bulls? More Jocko. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you get the nickname Jocko? Uh, Actually, my parents gave me that nickname. Oh, they did? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, my real name is John, but ever since I was born, I've been called Jocko. So that's what everyone knows me as. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, when you, and of course, we're going to talk a a lot about your time deployed and uh, training other other people, but let's take a look at your physique. So, so we were introduced through uh, Pete Atia, who's mm-hmm. also been on this podcast. Very funny, uh, very smart guy, and he said you have to ask Jocko about his weight gain. Now, this is not bad weight gain because right now you're about how much? Would you say two thirty, two thirty five, two thirty? If you were green, you'd be the Hulk. You're a big guy, uh, and. Uh, very fit, but when you entered the seals, how much did you weigh? One seventy four. One seventy four. How on? Well, earth? that's when I when I started seal training, I weighed one hundred and seventy four pounds. And how, how did that transformation take place? I mean, was it was it just an, a growth spurt, or were you facilitating that with uh, resistance training? How did that come about? So I entered seal training at one hundred and seventy four pounds, and you know everyone's seen what seal training is like. It's a lot of push ups, a lot of pull ups, a lot of dips, running, swimming, obstacle course. Uh, I just ate what they fed us, which is they feed you a lot. And in the course of seal training, I put on I think I graduated one hundred and eighty five pounds. And then once I was done with that and started getting in SEAL platoons, you know, and we all lifted heavy and wanted to be big and strong. And so I lifted heavy and ate a lot. And I think I put on, I was up to 200 my first platoon. And then after that, I got up to about 225. And now, depending on what's happening in the, in the fight game and who I'm training with and what they're preparing for, I'll go up to, you know, 240, 245 if I need to, and then come back down once, you know, those events are over. So in other words, I'll be, if I'm training a guy that's a heavyweight, or, or fighting a heavyweight, then I'll put on some weight so I can simulate that better. 
What type of training would you suggest for people? What type of regimen? What, a, what might a workout or a week look like for someone who wants to, let's just say a male, 25 years old, who wants to add uh, lean mass? What would you deadlift and squat. Deadlift and squat. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that's the universal answer, right? Yeah. Does anyone say anything different when you ask that question? <laughs> I don't ask. I, I don't ask many people, but you have, you have such an incredible range of weight over that period of time that I had to ask. I mean, I think that is the right answer. Um, I think the eating is a lot harder than the training in some respects, at least for me. I mean, I got up to, I'm, I'm walking around about 175 right now, but I did to beat a friend in a bet, which didn't even involve money. So I'm not sure why I subjugated myself to this or subjected myself to this, but uh, I got up to like 215. Mm-hmm. Uh, the eating was a harder component. I remember being on a deployment on a ship and so the food on the ship is not good. You know, you're on a six month deployment on a ship and I was a seal. And when you're on a ship as a seal, you're not, you don't have, you don't have a job other than just to work out. This is especially, you know, in the nineties. So it was a totally different world, the dry years, because there's no war going on. And I remember, you know, we we're all just trying to get huge. And I remember getting, uh, plates full of chicken McNuggets or whatever brand they serve in the Navy. And I would just be sitting there at a table, you know, for 40 minutes after chow was done being served. And I'm just looking at these chicken nuggets and hating them and putting them in my mouth and forcing them down in order to gain weight. So, yeah, (laughs) stupid, stupid, but requires dedication. And there's something to be said for, uh, you know, to use one of your terms, I'm a world-class chicken nugget eater (laughs) when when I need to be, uh, Let's talk about um, the MMA, and then we're going to come back to military. When did you first get exposed to jujitsu or uh, martial arts? So I'm on my first deployment, 1992 or 1993, and I'm in Guam, and there's an old SEAL master chief named Steve Bailey, and he was kind of known as a badass. In fact, he was known as a badass, and the reason he was known as a badass is because he was a badass. And so this is pre-UFC. No one knows anything. And he has been training for a year or something with the Gracies up in Torrance. And he took a bunch of us new guys and said, hey, does anyone want to learn how to fight? And of course, absolutely want to learn how to fight, myself and a couple of other guys. And uh, you know, he was like a high-level white belt, maybe even a medium-level white belt, but it's 1993. You know, right. no one knows all anything. New. So, you know, he taught us, you know, the rear naked choke, the arm lock, how to escape the mount, and possibly an Americana. Yeah. Posting on the chest into. Right. And so with those moves, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, being in the SEAL teams, you're constantly, I mean, it's a, it's an environment where there's lots of escalations, <laughs> you know, in a platoon. And so you're constantly scrapping and wrestling and fighting and, you know, uh, that's part of it. And so, but with these basic man- maneuvers that I learned, I could do well, you know, and it was, it was badass. So that's when I started it. And then I, you know, the, I didn't really see, it didn't really have the vision, you know, I thought that it was, a you couldn't finite, see where it would go. I thought it was a finite thing. Mm-hmm. I know these seven moves, everyone that's stepped up to me now, I've been able to handle. I'm good. I'm, I, you know, I'm good. Right. And it wasn't until one of my other buddies, uh, who was a SEAL, who was in that initial pack with me, um, a guy by the name of Jeff Higgs. And he had kind of 
he had gotten out of the SEAL teams and he had just dedicated himself to training jujitsu. And one day he came to my house and, you know, we were even when we were both idiots, right? <laughs> and then he came to my house one day and he says, Hey, you want to train? And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. So we went over in the grass across the street from my house and, you know, he, he had just gotten his purple belt. So you can imagine a purple belt in 1995. Yeah. I mean, Unusual. you know, he was just completely beyond you know, anything I knew, he tapped me out a thousand times and I said, Hey, where, where are you training? Give me the place. And that was it. Went down the next day and signed up for unlimited classes. And I took three classes a day until the present time. Three classes a day. Yeah. I mean, I would just go during lunch. I'd go to the, the beginner class. I'd go to the advanced class. I would just get after it. <laughs> and, uh, who was he training with? Do you recall who he was training? Fabio Santos. Fabio Santos. Yep. And let's flash forward to the current day. Uh, who are the primary teachers you've trained with and what's, what's the current status of your jujitsu and training? Well, my, uh, long story short, myself and Dean Lister, uh, we ended up not being with Fabio anymore and we ended up kind of going out on our own. Dean went out on his own. I mean, I was, I was, you know, an active duty seal. So I wasn't a full-time jujitsu guy, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I was a full-time main training partner for Dean. And so we left and we ended up going to a couple different schools and eventually, uh, opened uh, a big gym down in San Diego. And we have Dean Lister and Jeff Glover, uh, are, are our primary instructors. What's the name of the school? Victory MMA. Victory MMA. And, uh, how did, what was your experience opening a business as an active seal? How did your military experience help or hinder that you know, I'd say it was the typical stuff. Hey, okay, let's figure out what the plan is going to be. How are we going to put it together? I, I, you know, it was opening a gym. We weren't, you know, planning. <laughs> we weren't, we, <laughs> you weren't you know, building it was, a railroad. It, was a or... than, it wasn't, it was a lot less than even planning a, a regular SEAL mission um, in a lot of ways, which again, planning SEAL missions is no, is no, you know, high intellectual task either. I mean, you got bad guys, you're going to go kill them. That's, that's not super advanced. And of course there's technology and timelines and all that, but it's not, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, we did a good job and opened up a big space and teach a bunch of jujitsu. So, okay. Got it. So as, as far as sort of tactical <clears throat> implementation, not the most complex thing that, that you've done, what would you, what would you put on the, uh, the higher level end of, of complexity in terms of things that you've spearheaded or, uh, had to tackle up to this point in your, well, there's, there's two types of complexity that you, that, you know, we could talk about here. There's the actual complexity of the mission, which again, in generally is not going to be super complex, but what is complex is yet you're dealing with human beings who have, you know, all these variables, emotions and problems and issues and egos. And that's the complexity in anything. Mm-hmm. And so that's from a leadership perspective, that's what I've found to be always the more challenging thing, you know, that's always the more challenging thing is dealing with people and getting people to, you know, conduct operations or carry out missions in a way that is most efficient, most effective, especially when, you know, they could get killed doing it. And, you know, you're asking guys to do things that are very, very dangerous where they know they could die. And so that's, what's complex. That's what's complex. And, and it transfers over to the business world where you've got to get, you know, a group of people. It's the same thing. You've got to get a group of people to carry out a mission. And mm-hmm. that, you know, in the most efficient and effective manner. So they both have that in common. And I think that is usually the more complex piece is the leadership of human beings. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, uh, makes me think of, um, uh, I guess custom auto 
who worked with Tyson for so long and really took him to his first uh, world championship belt, he said, you know, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the face. And I think that when you have something that's very simple on paper, but there are a lot of unknown or uncontrollable variables, the plan is just a starting point. But then you have to adjust in the field. And obviously, when the stakes are as high as they are, uh, when you were deployed, uh, I, I can see how that would be infinitely complex, potentially, you know, depending on, on how sideways things go. How did you become a SEAL? What's, what's the story of you becoming a SEAL? Well, I grew up in New England, and I actually grew up in a little town in the sticks of New England, and I was a, kind of a rebellious kid. In fact, I was a pretty significantly re- rebellious kid, and, and I know it seems counterintuitive, but when you grow up in New England, um, one of the most rebellious things that a human being can do is join the military. <laughs> and right. almost the the ultra rebellious thing you could do because you know it's very uh you know i grew up with a bunch of hippies you know yeah, the sure. kids were hippies they were deadheads they were smoking pot and i was not into that and i was so so they thought they were rebellious because they were smoking pot and doing acid and right. whatnot and uh i don't know you tell me who was more rebellious because yeah. i ended up becoming a commando for my whole life <laughs> I think the, the, the sort of pot and hacky sack scene, I've spent a lot of time in Vermont and New Hampshire. That, exactly. that seems kind of par for the course. It's exactly. like uh, <laughs> sort of conformist rebellion. Uh, but the, uh, and what was the path that you took then? So it was, uh, at what point did you enlist? So I actually, uh, 1989 and Panama happened. The invasion of Panama happened and four seals were killed there. And when I saw that, in the paper, I was, I guess the word would be ashamed that I was not there. I, you know, the Vietnam war was over, so we weren't seeing headlines all the time. And all of a sudden there's guys that were dying for the, for, for our country. And I was not there. And right after that, I went down to the recruiting station and said, I wanted to be a seal. And what happens after that? So then, you know, I went to boot camp which is Navy boot camp, got done with boot camp. And is boot, boot camp is separate from BUDS. It is, it is separate. And then you go to a school where you learn a Navy trade and then you start BUDS. So started BUDS in, I think it was April of 1991. So this was right after the Gulf War. Hmm. So from my perspective, leading up to the Gulf War, there, you know, there were some reports. I remember hearing them on the news. They're saying there's going to be 40,000 casualties in the first 24 hours. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember that. I don't remember that. I remember that because I was in the military and I was going to SEAL training. I so, was in China when I saw the announcement on television. So, so here I am thinking, okay, this is going to be, I'm going to get some, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to war. You know, all these guys are going to get hurt and injured, killed, and I'm going to go to war. And the war kicks off and 72 hours later, it's over. And I hadn't even started SEAL training yet. So... I was, you know, pretty bummed out. I know that sounds crazy, but you know, I was pretty bummed out because that's what I wanted to do with my life was be in combat and be some kind of warrior. And now the chance had just dissipated in 72 hours. Uh, but you know, it was the reality of what was happening. So went to seal training, went through and went over to seal team one. And in, let's say boot camp, just for people listening and for myself, quite quite frankly, who are not familiar with what happens in these different phases. Does, does, uh, is the object, what is the objective of boot camp in, in the, in, in, uh, this in is the case of the boot camp that you 
uh, attended and then buds, for instance, because I think a lot of people are familiar with the term like hell week and they, they think of buds as a disqualifying phase, right? The, the objective is to weed out the people who, who aren't suitable for combat or leadership or fill in the blank. But what, what, what are, what are the objectives of boot camp? And- so boot camp is to get a civilian, turn a civilian into a military human. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they teach you all this basic stuff. I'd say the key thing that they teach you in Navy boot camp is attention to detail. So you've got to do all these tasks. Because if you're in the Navy, you're working on an aircraft. And if you make a mistake working on the aircraft, people die. So it's very attention to detail oriented. And they just teach you the basic structure of the military and imprint that on your brain. Right. And See- then, and then SEAL training is, is what it is, what you said it is. It's mm-hmm. weeding people out. And what is the, of the, say, incoming, and I apologize, I'm going to massacre the terminology here, but of the incoming class, how many people go into BUDS and how many people make it out the other end? It's, it's, it's about an 80% attrition rate. 80% attrition. So 20% make it through. Yep. And uh, do you have to ring a bell? Is that an actual yep. thing? It, how does that work? Could you describe the... Yeah, they have a bell. And if you want to quit, you can quit at any time. And if you want to quit, you walk over to this bell that they carry on all the runs and they have it in the back of a truck. And, and if you want to quit, you go over and ring the bell and then you're done. Then you're done. What did you find most challenging personally in the buds training? If anything, you know, the thing with buds is, um, you know, I was not good at anything. I wasn't great at anything. I couldn't run fast. I couldn't swim fast, but I was like, okay at everything which is actually better because you didn't have a a single failure point. I I didn't have these areas of weakness of huge weakness. Now, Mm -hmm. again, I was not, believe me, I'm not saying I was great at at anything because I really wasn't. I'd finish the middle of the pack on a run or the middle of the pack of a swim. Uh, there were some guys, you know, I, I, a couple guys that I remember that were at the other end of the spectrum. We had a guy that played, you know, college NCAA water polo and he was a phenomenal athlete. And he quit because he couldn't get through the obstacle course. Mm. I had another guy in my class that was a, uh, was on, was an Olympic gymnast alternate and he quit because the water, you know, doing the stuff in the water got to him. So for me, luckily I grew up in the water and I grew up in new England. So I was used to the cold that didn't do anything to me. And you know, all you had to do was get the passing and put out as hard as you can, you know, like for the runs, I had to run as hard as I could to pass the runs. Mm-hmm. It was a sprint, uh, because you couldn't modulate. You didn't know how long the runs really were. They'd say they were four miles, but you had no idea what they were actually going to be. So you just had to run as hard as you possibly could. That's what I had to do. Right. That's gotta be uh, quite a mind trip. I mean, to start a, a run when it's not a primary strength and know you have to go all out without having any idea of the length. Of well, the you'd run. know it was going to be around Roughly. four miles. I don't want to make it sound like it. We had no idea, yeah. but it was, um, you know, we, it'd be, it'd be four and a half miles, you know, four and three quarter miles or whatever. Did the people who made it through the 20% who made it through buds, um, did the people who showed the most promise in buds end up performing best in the field? Not necessarily because buds isn't, is a much more athletic, uh, event, you right. know, it's about athleticism. A lot of it, a lot of it is also, you know, don't quit and, you know, I hear some people say everybody thinks about quitting during SEAL training, and I, I did, absolutely did not think about quitting at any time. You know, there was nothing if they could have killed me, and it would have been fine, but I definitely wasn't going to quit. And But when you get to the SEAL team, yeah, there were some guys that 
that you that were studs athletically, but they were not great seals when they got to teams. And there's also guys that are studs athletically that were studs in the seal teams. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to put a, a scientific answer around that one. Yeah, we'll come back to the training because I just I I loved talking about you know any types of commonalities or patterns that you've spotted in a couple of different areas, but um going to ask you about the bottle, the, the battle of Ramadi, but I, I want to first ask, where did you get this mental toughness? So this, this not thinking of quitting, even if it killed you, was that developed through athletics as a kid through something else? Is, is your entire family like that? I mean, where did that, where did that come from? Where did that drive and, and uh, stick to come from? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, some of it, you know, I, I remember, you know, my dad was definitely, you're not allowed to quit at anything ever. So that leaves a mark, right? Sure. Uh, also, I think that, you know, I grew up and I, I started listening to, you know, hardcore music and I had a hardcore attitude. And so I think that growing up under that influence, you know, that and watching war movies and, you know, a, a product of, of that, mm-hmm. you know, of that influence of those mantras that you'd hear in some hardcore song that's about, you know, getting after it. And I think that that left a mark as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you describe the battle of Ramadi and and, uh, explain what that is for people who may not even recognize the name Ramadi? So the battle of Ramadi. So Ramadi is a city in Western Iraq in a state, or a province called Al-Ambar province, which is the largest province in Iraq. And Ramadi is the capital city. Mm-hmm. And the battle of Ramadi that, that I fought in was in 2006. And at that time, most of the, or many of the insurgents had been pushed out of Baghdad. Many of them had been pushed out of Fallujah because the Marine Corps did a very uh, substantial effort through Fallujah and cleared it out. And a lot of those enemy had gone to Ramadi. So in the summer of 2006, the epicenter of the insurgency was in Ramadi. And so that's where my SEAL task unit deployed to. And that's where we fought. How long were you there? We were there for six months. For six months. How do you, how would you describe that experience to people? And I know that's a very broad question, but for, for for lack of a better way to to approach it, I mean, we can we can really peel back the layers. But when people ask you what was that like, how do you answer that? Well, for one thing, it was my second deployment to Iraq. So my first deployment to Iraq was all completely different. In that the insurgency hadn't been really truly established yet, and we as a country, this is 2003, 2004. And so we were doing very well, you know, at least everyone thought we were and we were winning. And, you know, I always talk about that deployment. Like we were rock stars. Cause we'd, you know, one o'clock in the morning, we'd drive out of the gate and go capture a bad guy and bring him back at three o'clock in the morning. And it was like, we were rock stars, you know, we'd, um, we had such a tactical advantage over the enemy and it was just pretty pretty easy. Mm-hmm. We always worked with seals only. It was just, it was just easy. Um, tough, of course, I'm not, I shouldn't say easy, but it was less challenging. And, and on that deployment, it was like, we won everything and we, we felt great. You know, we felt great about what we did. We felt like we accomplished our mission. And, you know, if those were the challenges of combat, 
as an individual, I felt like I did a good job. Right. You were well-equipped. I did a good job and, and my troop did, my platoon did a good job. We did a good job. And it was, it seemed like we passed a test, you know, like, cause you know, at that time we hadn't had sustained combat operations for a long time in the SEAL teams. So we felt pretty badass. So now you fast forward to Ramadi in 2006. It is completely different. There are insurgents that actually control a majority of the city. They are, have complete freedom to maneuver. They are terrorizing. And I don't use that term lightly. They are terrorizing. They are skinning people alive. They're beheading people. They're doing what you see on TV right now with ISIS. They're doing that. The civilian population is horrified and there are 30 to 50 enemy attacks a day in the city of Ramadi. There are route Michigan, which is a road that ran from east to west through Ramadi, which was loosely controlled by Americans, would have seven to 10 IEDs attacks, IED attacks a day. So this is the statistically the most IED road in all of Iraq. And it's three miles long. Improvised explosive device? Improvised explosive device. So these are roadside bombs that completely caused the majority of casualties in the war in Iraq. And so we get there, you know, the, the buildings are rubbled out. The buildings have bullet holes in them. There's wrecked vehicles on the streets. There's giant craters in the streets from IEDs. And on top of all that, on an almost daily basis, you're going to some kind of a memorial ceremony for an American soldier or an American Marine that's been killed in combat. And we rolled into that and right away I knew this is completely different situation and we are going to fight a completely different type of battle here. Were the, uh, in this case, I mean, looking at your opponents, were they better trained or did they just have a sort of territorial and movement advantage, um, that, that made it more difficult for you guys? They had both. They had both. They had both. So, there was a former military base, former Iraqi military base. So you, had, so you had a lot of former regime people there, soldiers, former soldiers that were there. They definitely controlled the terrain without question. They acted, they were allowed to fight in a completely different way than us. And by that, I mean, they have no rules. Right. And so you're fighting against someone that has no rules and you know they don't care about collateral damage. We are we are very careful about collateral damage. They don't care. Just to define that, you mean taking out civilians, people who are... Civilian casualties means nothing to them. Destroying a building means nothing to them. Um, Killing each other. So accidentally shooting or suicide bombers. I mean, there, there were suicide bombers on the regular in Ramadi. And so they have no rules. And so that gave them an advantage as well. Now, tactically, they did what we did. So... For example, you know, if we get into a bad firefight, we'll call for reinforcements. Reinforcements will come to help us. We would watch them do the exact same thing. If we had someone get wounded, we would call for a casualty evacuation. They'd come and pick them up and take them back to the field medical facility. We would watch them do the exact same thing. So they had communications. They had plans. They, they, would, they would hit with complex attacks. 
that would be coordinated throughout the city. So at one time, they would attack three or four different coalition outposts in, in the city or on, on the outskirts of the city, all coordinated, you know, not only amongst themselves, so the separate attacks would be coordinated, but the individual attacks would be coordinated where they were vicious, usually ending, you know, starting with machine gun fire and then rocket propelled grenades. And then their goal always was to get a suicide vehicle, a suicide vehicle bomb and drive it right into the compound and detonate and kill as many people as possible. And they did this on the regular. In, in that type of, well, so what was the, uh, what was your unit? What was your unit known as? SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser. And how many people were in that unit? So in that unit, you got about 35 SEALs. And then we have another 70 support people. So these are people that, you know, help us fix our vehicles, get our intelligence, man our radios, and all that. So, that, so you got about a pretty big pretty big contingent of support people. They're not SEALs, they're SEAL support. Got it. So about roughly like 100, 105 people yep. in total. Do those 35 SEALs, uh, do they all directly report to you? So in of those 35 SEALs, there's two SEAL platoons with, mm-hmm. you know, 16 guys each. And then we have a small headquarters element, myself and a couple other guys. Got it. And that was the most decorated special operations unit in the Iraq war. It was. What what separates a good commander from a great commander in an environment like that? Out of the gate, you know, my immediate answer is humility because you're in a situation like that. There's no way that you know everything. It just it's not possible. And so you have to be humble enough to, you know, reach out, ask people for advice. There had been a, there'd been conventional units. So big army units, you know, um, on the ground for years. And when we got there, there'd been a unit on the ground, the 228, uh, iron soldiers from Pennsylvania. I'm just giving them some props right now because they were awesome. And they, they'd been on the ground for 14 months fighting. So we went to those guys and we, you know, said, okay, what, how can we help? What can we do? What advice do you have for us? Uh, we wanted to learn what they knew. And I I think that that was a big piece of it. And also, you know, I had an open mind when it came to the strategic mission that we were trying to accomplish because for many years, what seals and special operations and the conventional units were doing was going out in the neighborhoods grabbing bad guys and coming back to their bases. And after three years of that, the enemy attacks had gone up 300%. So clearly something was not working. And the, the brigade that came in and took over again, I'm going to give some, uh, huge compliments to the one, one AD under Colonel Sean McFarland. They came in with a amazing strategy, which was seize, clear, hold and build, which meant you got these bad neighborhoods that are owned by the enemy. And okay, we're going to go in there and we're going to stay there. And that was a, a very different strategy than anyone had used. And so that's the seas. That's the what? That's the, the seas, clear, hold and build. So you go into these enemy territories and you actually take over a building or two buildings or three buildings and you make them your house, make them your fort. And so that, so that's what we did. And again, so from my perspective, uh, you know, for Colonel McFarland and the rest of the battalion commanders and all those commanders to have this open mind to try out 
a new, a completely new strategy, which was very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert. That sounds very risky. It was extremely risky. And you know, there was a, a, a huge price was paid. Um, the casualties were very significant and very horrifying. Now, despite that overall, was that an effective strategy? It absolutely that was. That was just the price that it exacted. It, it, it absolutely was. So by the time I left, the, the strategy hadn't, we hadn't seen the results yet. I left October 21st, 2006 by, and, and there was still about 30 to 50 enemy attacks a day. About five months after we left, the enemy attacks were down to one a day, two a day. From what was the previous? From 30 to 50. Wow. And then, and then six months later, it was, you know, down to one a week and then one a month. And then soon, uh, you know, by 2007, Ramadi was the safest place in Iraq. I mean, if excluding maybe the Kurd controlled area up in the north. And do you attribute that to anything uh, else outside of this, uh, this stratagem, the, the, the seas, I'm apologizing that I'm forgetting the, the others, but occupying these buildings or areas and making them your home for a period of time. Were there other, uh, tactical decisions or strategies that contributed to that decrease? So the other, well, obviously the other huge piece of this is the men and women that were fighting and God bless them all because it was a hell of a fight. And like I said, there was significant casualties and the other focus now was to take back the neighborhoods and in that secure the populace. So in other wars, you know, you say, okay, here's our strategic objective is to take this hill or take this airfield or, or what, or what have you. In this one, the goal, the strategic goal was to secure the populace, to make sure that the populace was safe because once the populace was safe, then it was, okay, now we're going to give you some food. We're going to give you some water. We have Iraqi troops with us. We, so we worked all the time with Iraqi troops and they're speaking the same language. And it took a very short amount of time before that barrier got broken down and the local populace of Ramadi turned against the insurgents because they were no longer feared them. And so that was the other huge tipping point was getting the, uh, the local populace of our, of Ramadi on the side of the coalition. I imagine that would give you a, I mean, an enormous informational advantage. Also. Absolutely. The, so it sounds like you have humility and openness to modifying pre-existing strategies, uh, but then there's also an experimental piece. It sounds like. I mean, how was the, how was the first uh, experiment conducted, uh, or how did it come to pass and be implemented uh, that you would go in and occupy and test out that particular approach? Because it seems like were there other uh, experiments like that. And I know I just asked two questions, but, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out in a military structure and I haven't been exposed to that where I'm sure there are a lot, there's a, there's a lot of command, uh, structures in place. Um, were you given a lot of latitude to experiment in that way or did it require a lot of process? So let, let me give you a, I'll try and give a concise answer. doesn't have but, to be concise. But this is you're you know, you're going deep right now, oh, yeah. which is fine. Uh, because I guess it's your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll take it back to a place called Al-Qaim where the Marines did a big sweep through Al-Qaim. And at some point when they went through Al-Qaim, the local populace started saying, hey, there's bad guys over there. Hey, there's bad guys in that building down there. Go get them too. So there was a little thought about that. 
Now there was a uh, place in north of Ramadi called Talafar, which there's a great uh, legendary army commander and I'll have to McMaster's. And I got to look that up because I, I think I'm, I think yeah, I'm missing it. But. Yeah, that's okay. And people in the show notes can also, um, they, they can also do some H. research. H.C. McMaster, the guy's legendary guy, but he ran this seize, clear, and hold strategy up in Talifar, and it was very effective. And again, this is pre-surge. That was 2005, 2006. Colonel McFarland went and took over for him in Talifar and saw, you know, got the turnover and understood what had happened. And then Colonel McFarland got the task once McMaster left to come down to Ramadi. And he said, you know, I'm going to do the same thing there. And so that's what he did. And, you know, it was, you know, one thing that's interesting is it's not a movie. And so everything was not perfect. And you'd push into some of these neighborhoods and it was fierce, fierce fighting. And, you know, you take casualties. And I think that Colonel McFarland understood that deeply and he also had a vision for what the victory was going to look like. So those, those pieces and, and pushing in, you know, the first time it was like, Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into this neighborhood that's controlled by the insurgents and move in. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a, in a uh, battle such as, uh, you know, uh, Ramadi, how do you define objectives um in the longer term not necessarily on a, on a nightly basis but in the longer term so that you can focus the efforts and yeah. su- and sustain the morale for that matter right and that's that's actually a, a simple question you know okay here's what we're going to do 3 days from now we're going to go into this neighborhood we're going to establish a combat outpost and and that's what we're going to focus on for the next 3 days and then once we get that thing established guess what we're going to spend a you know 4 or 5 days there and then we're going to do it again. And grand picture, you know, strategic vision, here's what it's going to look like. We're going to have combat outposts all over Ramadi that are going to be controlled by Americans with Iraqi soldiers in them that can go out and talk to the local populace and we can secure the city. So it was, it was as simple as that. Now you take that down a level to let's say my SEAL platoon, one of my SEAL platoons, and they'd be saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go and take this particular building. And then we're going to cover for the conventional units as they come in, in a very exposed way. Because when you build these combat outposts, you're literally doing a construction project in the middle of a combat zone. So these guys, these brave army engineers are standing with, you know, a hammer in their hand, full body armor, and, you know, reinforcing these buildings, loading sandbags, building barricades, and you know, this is while we're being attacked. Wow. And so those guys, you know, like I said, I I can never give enough credit to the units that we worked there in Ramadi. They were phenomenal and brave. And what we would do is while they were doing those missions, building out those combat outposts, we would go out to the high ground surrounding the combat outpost. So we'd sneak out into the areas surrounding the combat outpost. So now when the enemy came to attack the combat outpost, we would kill them. Right. And they didn't know where we were in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, they'd figure out where we were and, and, and come attack. What um, was the sort of division of expertise like among the 35 SEALs uh, under your command? In so much as, and again, I, 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 I have to apologize because my 
what I know of SEALs, some of it has come from guys who've been deployed, um, who, who are friends of mine, but a lot of it comes from seeing films, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of the exposure that civilians have here, but, uh, and some people say like, oh yeah, that, that guy's a door kicker. You know, this guy's this, this guy is that. How did the, the responsibilities break down, uh, across those 35? You know, it's, it's, it's a SEAL, two SEAL platoons. Mm-hmm. Each SEAL platoon has a, a singular leader that's in charge of the whole platoon and he's got some subordinate leadership underneath him. And then you've got these guys that are, have their specialty craft, whether they're snipers, whether they're medic guys, corpsmen, whether they're breachers, which are guys that blow up, blow things up, blow open doors, uh, riflemen, grenadiers, uh, point men. So you've got these various, um, skill sets inside. What is a, uh, I apologize, the rifleman and then what was the other word? Grenadier. Are they the same? No, there's two different. It, it depends. You know, so a rifleman is basically a guy with a rifle, which we generally wouldn't have because almost every guy in a SEAL platoon is doing something other than just shooting his gun. Like I said, he's a radioman, so right. he's calling in for fire, calling tanks, c- calling casualty evacuation, anything like that. The sniper is being a sniper. The machine gunners are machine gunners. Uh, a grenadier lobs gre- grenades at people. Ah, all right. So, no. so that's, that's what a SEAL platoon is. Now the experience level in a SEAL platoon is, you know, you've got guys that have never deployed before. And we had probably out of 30, 30, whatever guys, we probably had a dozen that had never deployed before. So it was their first deployment to Iraq. And it was, you know, pretty epic first deployment to Iraq. Um, and then you've got guys that have varying level of experience inside the platoons. And, you know, some guys had deployed to Iraq one, two or three times. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the, the level of experience. And did you have, um, what were the size of groups that would go out and say, uh, a nightly raid or something like that? And again, I'm, I apologize. I'm playing the civilian role here. So I'm, I'm not going to get everything right. But like, what are the, the, would the core group be sort of like a six or seven? We would task organize depending on the mission. Mm-hmm. So if you, it's important to remember that we were working with Iraqi forces. Mm-hmm. So we had these other people with us sure. that we could use as bodies to do, you know, some of what, some of the work, mm-hmm. right? Some of the work. And so, you know, what we'd send six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 seals out with, eight, 10, 12, 20, 40 Iraqis. And, and then the, it's the whole spectrum. Cause sometimes we'd send an entire SEAL platoon out, you know, 16 guys with 40 Iraqi soldiers or 50 Iraqi soldiers. And sometimes we'd send, you know, five seals out with five Iraqi soldiers to do some kind of an overwatch position, a little smaller, but you know, you, we still had a minimum that we, we needed to take out. What is an overwatch position? Overwatch position is kind of what I talked about earlier where you get the high ground Got it. or right. maybe not, maybe not necessarily the high ground, but often the high ground. That's the tactical, that's the tactical advantageous position on the battlefield is to be on the high ground. Who are other people, uh, in the military, alive or dead us or elsewhere, um, who you really respect as, uh, sort of strategists or tacticians. Obviously I talked about, uh, Colonel Sean McFarland, who was just fantastic. And, you know, he was, he was, and I don't know if I'm necessarily right on this, but you know, general Petraeus, uh, who wrote the manual, 
on counterinsurgency. So he's obvious and he, you know, orchestrated the surge and he's uh, brilliant. And, you know, in my opinion was, you know, the critical player in, in really turning the rest of the war. Again, we were pre-surge and, but I think they used the success in Ramadi as a reason to, uh, to sell the surge. Like we can do this in other places. We did it in Ramadi. So, you know, from my perspective, both those guys were, uh, were just outstanding. And when you, when you look at, and the reason I was asking about the, the smaller groups that are sent out, say the, the eight to 10 seals with then the, uh, the, the Iraqi, um, colleagues, uh, what distinguishes a good leader in that type of situation or in buds or elsewhere? I mean, what, what, what have you observed and learned about what makes a good leader versus a good or a mediocre or a bad leader? Uh, again, it's, it's the, the immediate answer that comes to mind is humility because you've got to be humble and you, you've got to be coachable. You know, the, we would fire guys you know, and later when I was running training, we would fire a couple leaders in every, from every SEAL team because they, they couldn't, they couldn't lead. And 99.9% of the time, it was, wasn't a question of their ability. It was a question of their ability to listen and their ability to step outside and see that maybe there's a better way to do things. Uh, so that's, that's number one. And number two, I would say is a, an individual who is balanced. And, you know, I talk about, there's a, there's a phrase that I use. It's the dichotomy of leadership. So in a leadership situation, you're constantly balancing these opposing forces. So do you have to be aggressive? Absolutely. Can you be too aggressive? Yes, you can. Um, can you be, do you need to be courageous? Yes, you do. Can you be foolhardy and get people killed? Absolutely. So there's all these balances. Can you be too close to your men? Yes, you can. Can you be not close enough? Yes, you can. Can you be too robotic? Yes, you can. Can you be too emotional? Absolutely. So what I find the best leaders, they have this ability to balance all those opposing forces. And, and usually when you do find a problem, you know, if you're, if you're making, if you realize that your leadership isn't working, generally you can look and say, Oh, I'm going too far in one direction on this particular, uh, force, mm -hmm. this dichotomy of leadership. I'm going too far. I'm being, being overbearing. I'm micromanaging, you know, micromanaging is a great one, right? You, you can obviously micromanage your people and they won't act. They won't do anything on their own. They won't take any initiative. And that's horrible. The other end is you cannot give them the guidance that they need and, and not, pay close enough attention to them. And now they don't know what the mission is or what they're doing. So there's all these dichotomies that you have to balance as a leader. And, you know, I think that between being humble and, and balancing all those dichotomies of leadership is, is what makes a good leader. And how would say the ability to listen and be coachable, um, what would be an example of how that manifests itself? Just how you would observe that and say, that's a guy who's good at, uh, being humble and coachable or the opposite, right? Like, so I'm looking for the things that you would observe or hear where you'd be like, you know what? I think we might have to let that guy go. Yeah. You'd see a guy in, again, now we're going back to training. Mm -hmm. We put these guys through very, um, realistic and challenging training to say the least. And I know if there's any guys that went through training when I was running it right now, they're chuckling because it was very realistic, psychotic. And we put so much pressure on these guys and overwhelm them and, you know, a good leader would come back and say, 
I, I lost it. I didn't control it. I didn't, I, I didn't do a good job. I, I didn't see what was happening. I got too absorbed in this little tiny tactical situation that was right in front of me. They'd, they'd either, they'd make those criticisms themselves about themselves, or they'd say, what did I do wrong? And when you told them, they'd nod their head, they'd pull out their notebook, they'd take notes. And, and that right there, you know, that's a guy that's going to, that's going to make it, that's going to do it right. And then you get the guy that comes in and he's immediately saying, uh, you know, you say, well, what'd you think of the operation? Or, and if it was a disaster, you'd say it was a disaster and you go, well, what went wrong? And immediately it's, well, my assault team leader didn't do X and my mobility commander didn't do Y. And I told those guys I wanted them to go over there and they didn't go there. Finger pointing. Immediately finger pointing. And that's just a, an, a telltale sign. You've got a guy that's not humble enough and, and coachable. And it's, it's an awful thing. And you can, try and you can try and change people. And sometimes they would change, but it's difficult to get them to change. You know, that's, some people are, are born with that characteristic. And, and it's, it's a bummer to see because it's, if you can't fix them, you can't fix them. Right. And they're not going to listen to anybody. Well, it sounds like uh, self-awareness is also a big component of that, to have the, the awareness to kind of step outside and objectively evaluate yourself. I, I, you know, I call it detachment. And, you know, that's one of the things that early on in my leadership career, I, I actually remember when it happened, I was probably 20 something years, 22 or 23 years old. I was in my, I was in my first SEAL platoon and we come up, we're on an oil rig in California doing some training and we come up on this level of this oil rig and it's never been on an oil rig before. They're very complex. There's gear and boxes and just stuff everywhere on these levels and they're see-through. You can see through the floors and you can see it's, it's a complex environment and we come up and we all get on, on this platform on this level and everybody freezes and I'm kind of waiting and I'm a new guy. So I don't really, you know, I don't feel like I should be doing anything. But then I said to myself, you know, somebody's got to do something. So I just, what's called high ported my gun. So I just lifted my gun up towards the air. Like I'm not, I'm not a shooter right now. And I took one step back off the line and I looked around and I saw what the picture was. And I just said, you know, hold left, move right. And, and everybody heard it and they did it. And I said to myself, Hmm, you know, there's that, that that's what you need to do. And so I realized that detaching yourself from the situation so you could observe it is, so that you can see what's happening is absolutely critical. And, and now, you know, when I talk to executives or mid-level managers, I explain to them that I'm doing that all the time. I, I, it sounds horrible, but it's almost like sometimes I'm not a participant in my own life. I'm an observer of that guy that's doing it. So if I'm having a conversation with you and, you know, we're trying to discuss a point and I'm watching and saying, wait, are you being too emotional right now? <laughs> or, you know, or, wait a second, look at him. He, you know, cause I can't, I'm not reading you correctly. If I'm seeing you through my own emotion or ego, I can't really see what you're thinking. But if I step out of that and now I'm seeing, I see the real you. And if you are getting angry, if your ego is getting hurt, if you're about to cave because you're just fed up with me, whereas if I'm you know, raging in my own head, I might miss all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that detachment that takes place as a leader is critical. And, and you're 100% right on that. How do you instill that or try to teach that 
is that is is that something people I, I i feel like that maybe more than the humility seems to be a coachable skill um and the part of the reason i say that is because i've found that whether it's like cognitive behavioral therapy or stoic philosophy for that matter you can in small increments condition people to have less of an extreme emotional response and to try to observe themselves and i suppose that, that there's some buddhist thought that would translate to that as well. But how do you teach, how do you help teach someone that ability to detach? So what we did to teach them was put them under extraordinary pressure where to fail to detach from the situation and step up and away from the problem would result in failure. And I I had a great experience where one of my, uh, one of the guy that actually took my job over as the troop commander, and a very close friend of mine, he, he got hurt. So he was, he was going through the training now and I was running the training and we were going out to a place called Nyland, California to do land warfare. And again, this is desert operations. You're patrolling in long distances, you're hitting targets and we have uh, like high level laser tag guns mm-hmm. that we use to shoot. And, and it's very, we, we put a lot of pressure on people. There's helicopters, there's smoke, there's bombs, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And this guy, this buddy of mine, he was supposed to be commanding and all, but he had broken his neck oh, God. about, I don't know, six weeks prior to this. Was that on like a ropes course or it was, a it was, it was uh, climbing a ship yep. and the guy above him fell oh, and broke his God. neck. And so this guy who's, who had been in Ramadi with me, and, you know, did an outstanding job and, and amazing effort and was brave as to a fault, you know, we're lucky he's here. So he, so, so the land warfare training takes place and he comes out and I said, Hey, just come out and watch with me. And so he comes out and, you know, we're, we're, we're watching and we're out on one of these field training exercises. So all this mayhem starts. And there's bad guys up in the hills and there's bombs going off and there's smoke everywhere. And, but from our position, which we were standing next to the guys that were in it. And, and he looks at me and he says, you know, it's so easy when you're not in it. And I said, this is how it was for me. When we went through, I was up here and he was like a light bulb went off. You know, he said, I, I saw you, you know, like he would, he kind of saw me like that and said, how does he know what's happening right so now? So the ability easy in so much as when you're the outsider looking in, you can see what to do, what's going exactly. wrong. And when you did it, you were not necessarily physically removing yourself, but sort of mentally yes. pulling the perspective back so you could observe it. So, so if you take someone like your, your, uh, your friend who has this realization, like, oh, holy shit. Okay. That explains a lot because yeah. if you could create this perspective, you would have a huge tactical advantage. Um, what type of, uh, exercise would you put someone through where the consequences were so significant that they would be forced to detach in that way? I mean, these are just exercises that we do sure. and, you know, like I said, so we would use lasers. We had this advanced laser tag system where you get, you can get shot at 300 meters. And if you go, if you get shot at nylon and your beeper goes off and says you're dead, then you're dead. Right. And you're going to have to get carried out by your buddies, which is awful. And you're going to get, they're going to get hurt, sprained ankles, everything else. It's a nightmare. And then, and they're also now they can't maneuver as well. So now what happens when they get attacked again, which they're going to, 
because it's going to be Murphy's law out there. And the, the problems compound. And if the leaders get bogged down in those problems and don't step back, we'll literally, we would kill all of them. Right. And they'd come back with their, with their heads down and say, you know, what the hell just happened and what can we do better? And then, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd have this talk with them. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's like when you, it's like when you're growing up and you don't listen to anybody, not that you don't listen to people, but some lessons you have to learn, you know, through life and through experience. And so that happened and the guys would, you know, guys at varying levels, some of them would, would be able to go, Oh, I just saw it. Okay. Now I can make this happen. And that would happen as well, where, uh, I would see their, you know, when, in, in like in Terminator, when the beginning of the Terminator said, you know, on August 27th, 2016, the, the machines became aware you could see their leadership switch happen and all of a sudden they'd go boom. And, and then I would know my job was done and they'd step up. They'd, they'd, they'd take a step back from the situation. They would look around, they'd observe, they wouldn't, they'd make good decisions and good calls and then watch them progress out of it and finish the problem and, and do well. And then I, I knew that I had done my job. They'd become aware. They became aware as leaders. Yeah. So, so I, um, this is, in my mind at least, related to not panicking or at least being able to think in the midst of panic. Uh, and there's so many examples of this. I mean, in sports and elsewhere, but I remember doing some uh, convoy and evasive driving training with a bunch of executive types. I mean, these are not military guys, uh, just really for the experience. And part of the training involved splitting up into two teams, having sort of an ambush team and trying to go get a broken down car with a person passed out inside. They might be dead. They might be passed out back through, uh, basically a, a finish line. And, uh, we got to pick teams and I happened to be, I guess, one, one team leader. And I picked the guy who had the best evasive driving skills to be sort of the Victor one driver. And then I was in the passenger side with comms and everybody had paintball guns and uh, we had to keep the passenger side and driver side windows down so we could get nailed. And uh, there were also drivers trying to like take us off the road and whatnot. In any case, as soon as the paintball started flying, this guy just gunned it in a straight line. No response to comms, no response to anything. Even though under the pressure of sort of mock competition with the evasive driving and so on within cones, he'd been spectacular. How do you either pick people who are less likely to have that, that just go into a, a blind kind of red zone where they're unresponsive, uh, or, uh, prepare people and condition them so they can actually function when the shit starts hitting yeah, the fan. And that's exactly right. What you just said, we desensitize them to being in horrible situations and we condition them and work with, keep putting that pressure on them until they can get through it. Mm-hmm. Got it. So it's just, it's a, a matter of exposure. And, and most, most guys do, mm-hmm. you know, most, most guys, they go, okay, I'm, I'm used to this. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it'll be up a level it, for real. It'll be up a level. So you'll, and most guys will be good there too. You'll have a couple fall out there, yeah. but, uh, but the seal teams does a very good job of applying that pressure and conditioning you and desensitizing you to horrible situations so that you can deal with it when it comes. Uh, so, so I want to talk a little bit, we're just going to shift gears a little bit and I know we're, we're going to bounce a lot around a lot, but so I, I have, uh, 
I've heard that I've heard of your workouts uh, when you're deployed. And one guy said, I don't know if this is true, that you would uh, you know roll with like 20 guys in a platoon as as a workout and just tap out like 20 guys. Is that true? Well, yeah. I mean, you're rolling with guys that don't know anything, and so in order to get good training in, I would just have guys you know come in, you know, every 15 minutes, and you know I. I'd I you know I remember this particularly when I was at Team Two, and I would just have the guys come in every fifteen or twenty minutes, and just you know roll with them, and then another guy would come in. So yeah, yeah. Steph. But I mean, I was you know better than them at jujitsu, mm-hmm. and so you, it's it's not that I was any tougher. I just knew more. When you look at, uh, of course, you know many very good competitors in jujitsu, MMA. When you look at the the top performers in that world and then some of the top performers you've met in the SEAL world, uh, what are the commonalities, if any? Well, let me talk about jiu-jitsu first. Sure. Uh, one thing I noticed about jiu-jitsu is there are when we get to the when you get to the world class level of jiu-jitsu guys, there is a stratification there between guys that have a natural God-given ability that is above and beyond normal human. uh, It's above and beyond what a normal human being would do or should be able to do. Right. And there's not many of those people. Who would you put and who comes to mind when you think of that? I, I think... Um, Hicks and Gracie who, who, you know, I've trained with him and yeah, he's, I, I was, I was a blue belt when I trained with him, but you could feel that this guy is not normal. Uh, Dean Lister, who's my training partner forever. And, you know, I've rolled with guys from all over the world and Dean Lister is at another level. I've never rolled with Marcelo Garcia, but, uh, you know, just from watching in competition, you can see that he has that as well. And then the next, and and I mean, that's, there's not a large group of people at that level. And then the next level down is guys that train like maniacs and they're great athletes. And and that's that. And they're awesome too. You know, those guys are the world champions, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's my estimation and, and having rolled with guys on both ends of the spectrum, you know, Dean is an example because Dean has won world championships training a minuscule amount compared to, you know, what a normal person would have to train to get there, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if that's a compliment or, uh, uh, you know, a negative, right. But you know, it's, it's true. Yeah. It's, uh, now in, in the seal teams, as far as the, the high performers, I think it's the people that, you know, you, you, it's a certain level of focus, I think. And again, a certain level of open-mindedness and a certain level of dedication to the task and to the craft that they're dealing with. And you get guys that are just super passionate about the job. And if you're super passionate about the job in the SEAL teams, you know, there's a really good chance you're going to be one of the top performers Mm -hmm. because you're going to put in all that extra effort to, to do well. What are you world class at um, that people might not realize? Uh, well, first of all, I think world class is a is a strong word. It's a strong word. For, you, I, I, to, I sorry to interrupt because yeah, I because I'd say I'm world class at uh, you know just about nothing. Um, 
and and as far as what people might not know about me, one thing that's interesting about me is I I live a fairly compartmentalized life where, you know, my jujitsu friends would not meet my SEAL friends who would not meet the people that I work with in a leadership situation or in a in a civilian sector business world. So there's people that don't know that, you know, I'm a really good jujitsu player or that I work with big companies and help their leadership. And so there's that. But if I had to say, you know, what uh, the skill set that I have that I think helped me was number one, taking complex things and making them simple and then being able to communicate that simplicity to other people is number one. And number two, the ability that we already talked about to detach myself from situations emotionally and mentally, usually not physically. You have to be able to do it without detaching physically. But those, those things would be what I would say my talents, if I had any, because, you know, I'm definitely not the fastest, not the strongest, not the, uh, not the most flexible or whatever, and not the smartest. But it seems like, um, you know, it's very interesting. Mandana would say the same thing about like, I'm not the best dancer. I'm not the best singer. I'm not the best this, but I think like yourself, she's kind of a, um, what a five tool player, like a baseball player who can like hit for power, hit for getting on base, can field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and it's the collection of those tools that makes you say a world-class commander or something like that. Um, what is your, what do, what do your morning routines look like on an ideal day? Like what is the first 90 minutes of your day look like? When do you wake up? What is, what does that look like? So I wake up early. I wake up at four forty-five. Um, I like to have that psychological win over the enemy. And, you know, for me, that when, when I wake up in the morning and I don't know why I'm thinking about the enemy and what they're doing, and I know I'm not active duty anymore, but it's still in there that there's a guy that's in a cave somewhere and he's rocking back and forth and he's got a machine gun in one hand and a, and a grenade in the other hand and he's waiting for me. And we're going to meet. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking to myself, what can I do to be ready for that moment, which is coming, which is coming. And, uh, so that, that propels me out of bed that, and I, I work out early in the morning. Uh, so you wake up at four forty-five. What's the next thing aside from like brushing your teeth yeah. and doing the usual, uh, do the usual start working out. And I try, uh, ideally I like to get done with my workout by the time the sun comes up. And so now if there's waves, you know, I live by the ocean, so I'll go surfing and get done with that. And what is the morning workout? Uh, what does a typical morning workout look like? Uh, I, I, you know, I do a lot of pull-ups, push-ups and dips. I deadlift and do squats. I do sprints. I mean, it's everything that everybody knows. It's everything that everybody does, right? I swing kettlebells. Uh, I do burpees. You know, it's it's all that. And it's like a sixty-minute workout. How long is the workout? It depends. It depends on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I will. I'll try and do some strength movements to be strong. You know, deadlifts, cleans, clean and jerk, something like that. 
to make myself stronger or even if it's even if it's something like just dead hang pull-ups and i'm just maxing out but i I'll, I'll do something like that to make myself stronger and sometimes that can take a while you know because i'll just want to relax and and you know hit singles or doubles mm-hmm. um on deadlifts or cleans or whatever and then when i get done with that i'll do some kind of uh, some kind of metabolic conditioning of some kind, you know, I'll be sprinting or rowing or swinging a kettlebell or, you know, lighter weight, cleaning jerks for reps or something like that. So that's what it looks like for me. So you finish training when the sun comes up, hit the waves since they're there, which is a good policy. And, um, what happens then? You know, I'll, I'll come back and, you know, start doing normal human stuff. Um, <laughs> right. That's when the work begins. You know, yeah. The, the I, I, you know, I have, I have a leadership and management consulting business, so I'll have clients to talk to. I'll have emails to push out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll, I'll start taking care of that business. I normally don't get hungry mm-hmm. until 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. So around 10 or 11 o'clock, I start wanting, you know, to, to start to graze on some food and I'll do that. And, and then by, by noon, I'm, I'm feeling pretty hungry. Like I need some lunch. And, uh, what is, is, what does your diet generally look like? Generally looks like steak, steak and chicken and salad paleo ish. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm no, you know, I'm no stranger to having some mint chocolate chip ice cream <laughs> or some Ovaltine or whatever. Uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not you know, a competitive bodybuilder. And so, you know, I, I'll eat some normal food. Right. You can indulge when the, when, when the spirit moves you, when you think of the word successful, who are the first people or the first person that comes to mind? So for me, you know, the, the part of the world that I've seen, is a very dark place. It's a dark place. That's what war is. And when your job, which my job was, was to expand that darkness in many ways. I mean, it's war is about killing people. And so for me, when I look to someone that's successful. It's someone that brings some light into that darkness. So for me, the first people that come to my head are Mark Lee, who is one of my guys, first seal killed in Iraq. Mike Monsoor, one of my guys, second seal killed in Iraq, posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. And Ryan Job, one of my guys, wounded in Iraq, blinded in both eyes, made it home, medically retired from the, from the Navy, married his high school sweetheart, got her pregnant, and finished his college degree. And after his 22nd surgery to repair the damage that was done to his, his head and face, there were complications and he died as well. But all of those guys in all that darkness, 
they did things. They, they made a sacrifice that was completely selfless. And to do that and to live and fight and die like a warrior, that to me is success. And those guys are my heroes. What do you... What do you struggle with? And I, I ask that because, uh, I mean, we've, we've only just met, but it's hard for me as a civilian to fathom what, what you and your friends have been through. Uh, impossible for me to fathom. Um, and, I mean, it makes me just feel ashamed for ever complaining about a bad day or a hard day, uh, given what you guys have experienced and the stakes that are involved. And the sacrifices and the, the you know the sadness and tragedy that is uh, a part of that job. Uh, what what do you struggle with, uh, whether it's in the business sphere or just in in life in general? If you're open to talking about it, because I certainly I know that uh, I used to you know when I had these um, icons in my head, I was like, oh my god, Richard Branson, he's got it all figured out, he's doing everything perfectly. He's just, he's on cruise control, hitting home runs every time he gets at bat. And as I've slowly gotten to know, not necessarily Branson directly, although I have met him before, I realize like people all have, and this is something that you talked about, the detachment. You know, when I find myself, I've always had kind of impatience and anger issues. And it's helped me to be aggressive in sport and in business and in negotiation, but it's also caused some problems for me. And, um, but I've realized that one of the ways I can tone that down is by realizing that like everybody has, everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about uh, in some way. But what, what are the things that, uh, that you find difficult or that you struggle with or have struggled with? It's, it's, it's an interesting question because, and this is a filler answer in case you couldn't tell that. Because when I start off with, it's an interesting question. That means I'm not really quite sure what to say. Um, I've, you know, I've been, I've been lucky. I've been blessed. I've had, you know, a, a life that I would not trade with anyone in the world. Um, when you talk about Ramadi, I, that was the highlight of my life because I was leading men in combat, which is something, which was something that I always wanted to do and something that I felt that I was destined to do. And when I was in that situation, I knew that I, I wasn't, I don't look back and say, Oh, I wish I would have enjoyed that. No, I knew it then. This is it. This is, this is what you have been waiting for your whole life and what you really have been preparing for your whole life. And I was lucky to be there and I was lucky to have uh, incredible guys to work with both in my unit and in the other units in the Army and the Marine Corps that we worked with. I was lucky enough to have guys that were so brave and so dedicated. And I, I will use the word fearless 
not that they didn't have fear, but that they overcame it all the time. And so I'd say if there's anything that I struggle with now, it's just that does anything else matter? Is there, and the answer is no, the answer is no, nothing else matters. Nothing else is close. And so you have to deal with that. And, and I don't struggle is a, a strong word because I don't sit there at night, you know, wishing I was back. Well, okay. I do do that. You know, sometimes I, I often wish I was back, but I don't dwell on it because it's gone. And I'm so happy that I could be part of it and that I was able to work with such tremendous guys. And, uh, I try and keep their memory alive every day in my own head. How did you, when you were active, um, reconcile the risks that uh, are inherent in that job with family, with your family? Well, first of all, I actually, when I had, when I was young, you know, I, I thought that I was going to die. I thought I was going to die in combat. There was no war going on. This is ignorant thought, right? This is young, stupid, um, you know, unknowledgeable idiot saying, I'm only going to live to, I'm never going to make it to 30. Right. And I was good with that. Cause I had, you know, nothing. I was a single guy that was a, wanted to go out and destroy the world. You know, that's awesome. Then, you know, as I got older and I realized, Oh, I'm actually going to live to be 30 and probably 40. And so I had to, you know, work through that. Um, and you know what? I got married along the way, had kids. And I actually, when I had kids, I actually felt more ready to die because, you know, I had left my, fulfilled left, I'd fulfilled my, 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 I left, I left children. And so I actually felt like I was okay with that. Um, which I guess that's bad, but you know, men have been traveling and fighting for thousands and thousands of years since the beginning of mankind. And I knew that as a warrior, that's okay. And sometimes men don't come home and the families drive on and that's the way the world works. So I didn't really have much to reconcile there. Um, now, as far as division of time and, you know, having a family, I, I can tell you, uh, you know, I was very lopsided and unbalanced in that situation. You know, I, the SEAL teams to me was everything and nothing else mattered. Well, I shouldn't say it didn't matter, but it was definitely on a much lower priority. And I remember actually my wife sent me an email when I was on deployment and she, you know, she's very independent doing her thing. And she sends me an email that says something along the lines of, Hey, you know, send us a picture of where you sleep. Fair enough. You know, they show the kids where, where I sleep at night. And so I went up to my room and we had some old, uh, Saddam palace that we had taken over. Not really a palace, a, a Saddam house that we had taken over. And that's where we lived. And I had the, one of the rooms in this building. And so I went up and I took some pictures, some digital pictures of my bed. And I looked at them and I said, Oh, wait a second. And I went into a folder that I had and I pulled it out and I took out pictures of my wife and kids and I hung them up. 
on the wall. And I took pictures and I sent those home and I took the pictures back down because I didn't want to be thinking about my wife and kids when I had men's lives at stake. And that's how I compartmentalized and did what I did what I had to do, which was be dedicated to my guys, to the mission and to the country. And at that point in time, you know, it had to take priority over everything, took priority over everything. I mean, my guys, they had families they had to go home to. I can't be thinking about this other stuff. So there's a little reconciliation. Who are, uh, now that you've entered the uh, the civilian world, are there particular non-military leaders, whether they're CEOs or maybe outside of the private sector, uh, you admire or uh, look to in some way as role models? You know, I, you, you meet these guys and, and girls and they are, they, a lot of them might as well have been in the SEAL teams. You know, they're aggressive, they're making things happen. And yeah, I admire and learn from them all the time, you know, and, and I think they get the same thing from me and that's why I'm in business, you know? So, uh, absolutely. There's some, you know, America is the greatest country on earth and, you know, capitalism is what makes this country one of the, one of the things that makes this country so great. And those folks that run these businesses are, you know, part of that fabric that makes America great. So absolutely. They're, they're incredible people and, and they have the same faults that seals have and, and they make the same mistakes and they get, they get involved emotionally with stuff and their ego gets in the way. Of course, just like it happens with seals, it happens with them. And, and they, you know, they make the same mistakes where they don't, explain the mission to their troops or they don't break it down from a strategic level to a tactical level so that people on the front line can understand. So it's all the same mistakes. And that's, again, that's kind of why we're in business now. Right. Humans will be humans. Exactly. Group group Um, dynamics will be unfortunately that is correct. (laughs) And you know, when you, when you were talking about, um, the detachment, it made me think of, uh, uh, quite a few years ago, but I had, my first sort of frivolous lawsuit come in, which completely paralyzed me. I mean, I was so intimidated and shocked and fearful. Uh, and it ended up getting completely tossed out, but it took a long time and a lot of money. And I ended up developing migraines. I started clenching my jaw to the point where I had these shooting pains and I had to get a mouthpiece. And it, it caused a whole cascade of health problems and issues. And I, I remember talking to a number of my buddies who had been in business for decades and at very high levels. And one of them, <laughs> I won't give his full name away, but Pete, really hilarious, uh, but brilliantly effective executive. He goes, Timmy, he's like, you're too fucking nice. I should have sued you just because you should get used to it. And he's like, starts talking to me, treating it like such a non-event. It was just such a non-event for him. And I couldn't compute it at the time. But uh, now I've just realized like some of these things are a cost of doing business. And if you're going to be aggressive and push the envelope and step into environments that are uncertain, because that's where a lot of rewards are potentially, you're going to deal with these things. And so now... I'm at a point, like I've been exposed to that enough times, it, not necessarily frivolous lawsuits, but just legal headaches, because that's a sort of a side effect of having a very vigorous free market uh, on one hand, is you you have some legal complications. And uh, 
what I've tried to figure out for myself, uh, spending time with people who have been deployed and done the realistic training that uh, you, you've referred to, I mean, some of which is just beyond intense, uh, as, as they've described it to me, I've wanted to take myself out of this sort of keyboard uh, shackled experience from day to day and expose myself to more of these stresses, to try to toughen myself and inoculate myself against future uncertainty and things like that. What are uh, what are skills or experiences that you think every man should have? I mean, there's a whole there's a whole list of those. Right? Oh yeah, there's no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested because, quite frankly, I feel like, and I've had female friends say this to me, where they're like, you know, I meet a lot of guys, like I date a lot of guys, but there just aren't many men out there anymore, which. That we could dig really far into that, and there's it's, there's all sorts of complicated sort of gender questions and topics that that could raise. But just putting all that aside for the time being, I think a lot of folks like myself, even, uh, and I experienced this when I was doing the Four Hour Chef, and really got back into doing hunting and field dressing and trying to build things and working with fire. And I was like, wow, I feel like I'm slowly becoming maybe barely manually literate you know, compared to like my great grandfather who was chopping wood every day, building stuff, fixing things that broke, etc. Um, so what's, what would be on that list in your mind? I mean, if, if guys are listening to this and you know what, I want to toughen the fuck up just a, just a little bit, you know, if you went bare bones, basic, you're talking food, shelter, and water, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have the skills to bring those things to the table and make them happen? I think that's a very basic place to start. I can tell you that from, from my perspective, and I, I actually uh, gave a speech at one of my buddy's weddings and, you know, I said that there was three things in my life that made me feel like a man. And when you, when I say feel like a man, it doesn't mean bow up and feel like a man. It actually means the opposite. It actually means I, I'm confident enough that I don't need to bow up and I don't need bow to up meaning puff up your chest, puff and... up my chest and I'm a badass. Yeah. And, uh, the first one was, was actually jujitsu was learning how to fight and knowing that there's not a question that if I get into an altercation, I can handle myself. I a hundred percent that because when you're, when you don't know jujitsu or you don't know how to fight, then you question that in the back of your mind. And how do you, how do you answer that question? You act like a, a, an asshole, right? You, these are the guys that, you know, run around in a bar, getting in fights with people because they don't know, they don't, they're not confident that they can handle themselves. So that was number one. Number two is going into combat because again, there was a big question mark of, you don't know for sure how you're going to react in those situations. And I felt pretty good that I knew how I was going to act, but you know, you need to, you need to check the box. And so I checked that box and I knew that I was going to do fine. And that I did fine and that I was brave and not scared and was able to detach myself and make decisions and make things happen. So that was good. And then the last one was getting married and having kids because now all of a sudden I have other humans that are directly relying on me for as their, you know, their sole kind of leader and, you know, realizing that, 
this is the most important thing. You have to make this the most important thing in your life. And you're out of that game too, you know? So you're no longer trying to, you're no longer trying to impress, you know, a girl or whatever, because you got a girl. Right. And so there's a, there's a level of, you know, I don't care anymore, you know, that, that is also nice. So those, those three things were for me were kind of the, where I was able to say, okay, you know, I'm good now. Let's focus on being a good, a good guy and moving forward. But those were, those are, those are three good ones. The, the, on the jujitsu side, I, that's the only one that I can, that I can speak to having done, um, you know, a little bit here and there and also Muay Thai and whatnot. But I think that it's, it's so valuable on so many levels because not only do you know you can handle yourself, but if you think you're a tough guy and you go to a good gym, you get taught really quickly how untough you are. Yep. And so uh, I just remember, for instance, I was training at uh, Fairtex ages ago here in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, one of the guys who was a trainer, his name is N, E-N-N. And he was a Southpaw, so I trained with him because I'm a Southpaw. The most unassuming little dude you've ever seen in your life. Calves the size of my torso. But otherwise, you would never guess in a million years. And he had terrible fashion sense. And so he'd wear these, like, huge baseball caps that would cover his entire head. So he looked like he was about seven years old. He was, all, he was only, like, five foot one, five foot two. Huge baggy t-shirt, baggy pants. So he just looked like average guy who's going to be some type of manual laborer. Uh, and people would mistake him for being Mexican. And I just remember he went out to this bar because the gym was on Clementina Street, which was between Howard and Folsom, I think around. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was between Howard and Folsom between 5th and 6th, which is a, it was a terrible place to be when, when, uh, when I was training there. And in fact, Alex Gong, the owner was shot in the chest and killed, mm-hmm. um, basically I remember while, while I was there and, uh, by a guy stuck in traffic. It's an insane story, but suffice to say that he goes out to a bar and I was at a fly in camp at the time with a bunch of other guys. And this guy pulls a knife on one of the other trainers. <laughs> Why? Who knows? And so everybody kind of backs up and they're like kind of two groups facing each other. And one of the guys is like, I'm going to fuck you up. And to N, who looks like he's like a tiny little guy, and he just throws the nastiest round-ass kick you can imagine. Like, basically breaks the guy in half, like just a Lego figure being broken by a gorilla. And, and, and then that was just the showstopper. But it's just, I think once you train with people like that, you're like, I am never going to pick a fight yeah. because you never know who the N is, <laughs> right? Absolutely uh, true. And... um and I, I think it's very, uh, it, it also, that confidence and that humility, I think, transfers to so many other areas. Uh, because you realize, like, wow, you know, I thought I was the cat's meow. I thought I was the king of the hill in, in areas A, B, C, D, or E. But you know what? That's probably not the case. Um, the uh, On the combat side of things, um, what are stressful experiences that a civilian might expose themselves to that could... I know not perfectly simulate it, but to perhaps give them that type of fear inoculation or, or conditioning on some level. Um, I'm, I think any of those, you know, rock climbing, parachuting, uh, anything that has a real, real danger to it, which both those things can, you know, and do. Um, I think those, those can definitely help. I would say those are, those are a yeah. couple good examples. Sure. We could sit here and yeah. brainstorm about it, mm-hmm. you know, because because as soon as you put simulation, you know, we could say paintball, right? Right. 
but but there's no real no risk risk in paintball. They're just zero. So it's cool, and you can definitely get somewhat conditioned to you know that that panic and that stress level because it hurts. You get hit with the paintball, you know, ow, ow, ow. But it's not it's not the fear of death, which the fear of death is the uh, is I guess the the real the real thing that's that we're the, talking about. I guess it's yeah. You overcome that fear of death. And then what else was there to be afraid of now? Right. You know, well, you and I were, uh, you know, we were sitting here, we're in my house and you noticed the Musashi that I have out over there, this, this historical novel about, uh, Miyamoto Musashi. And I, I think that, um, I don't know where it came from and I can't really pinpoint it, but, um, uh, the reason I have that there is to remind me that if you're constantly afraid of death, I mean, you're paralyzed in so many facets of your life. It really prohibits you from making even effective decisions, right? So one could say, well, you should love your family and have the photos up. And it's like, well, if I really want to love my family and go home to see my family, maybe I shouldn't have those up as something that's going to occupy a part of my brain. I need to be effective in the field for me and my men. Right. No doubt about it. So it's thinking not about that first move that looks good on paper and to everyone around you, but thinking about the second, the tertiary effect, et cetera. Um, do you have, um, are there any books that you've gifted to other people? Uh, uh, or, or what, what do you gift to someone? There's, um, so for books, yeah. there's, I think there's only one book that I've ever given and I've only given it to a couple people. Uh, and that's the book called about face by Colonel David Hackworth. And it is huge. Have you ever heard of it? I haven't. And, uh, I was just looking for, Oh wait, here's my, here's my pad. And, and interestingly, I looked for it today on, on, to see if I could download a digital copy mm-hmm. and I don't think it's available digital, oh, wow. which, which surprised me. So Colonel David Hackworth was the tail end of World War II. Uh, he was in Korea. He was highly decorated in Korea. He joined the, like joined the Merchant Marines or something when he was 15 and got into the army when, again, right after World War II. So he kind of got raised by those World War II veterans. And then he was in Korea and he was in Vietnam and he was just absolutely borderline worshipped by the men that he led and by some of the senior leadership and just a great book. And he was a rebel, you know, and, and he did question the way we were doing things. And what's controversial about him is that he's the guy that said to Walter Cronkite, or he said, he's the first guy in Vietnam that said, we're not going to win this thing. And so he's, kind of, you know, blacklisted by much of the army. But, you know, as you dig into that, what he was really saying was, we're not going to win this thing if we keep fighting how we're fighting. He recognized that we needed to do a, a, a significant paradigm shift in the strategy that we were executing over there. And, you know, it's like you've, you've heard, hey, we've never, we never lost a tactical battle in Vietnam. You've heard that, right? Yeah. And there's plenty of people that will say that all day long. But if you and I are leading a platoon, and we take our platoon out and we hit a booby trap and it kills three of our guys or two of our guys and wounds another three and there's no one to shoot at and we medevac those guys and we come back to base. Who who, who won that? Right. And, and, you know, he recognized that. So the metrics that were being used were sort of uh, 
not not a uh, smokescreen, but they were at at best the wrong metrics in a lot I, of cases. I had that book next to my bed in Ramadi, and I literally read it every night. I would, you know, that's how I'd fall asleep. I'd go up, read a couple pages, you know, just open to any, and you'd find something in every. It was very comparable. You know, they were working with the the South Vietnamese Army, and guess what? They were corrupt and they were scared and they weren't the best soldiers and we were working with Iraqis and guess what? They were corrupt and they were scared and they weren't the best. There were so many uh, parallels. parallels between the two. And so that's the book that I've given to some, a couple close friends of mine that, that, you know, I wanted them to have about face. The other book that I really, that I, the, the, the other book that I've read multiple times is blood Meridian blood Meridian. Yeah. I don't know that. You don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's written by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, fantastic writer. So this is his best book. And, you know, I was an English major in college. And so, you know, I was forced to read all kinds of books and, you know, obviously Shakespeare is, is, is kind of the pinnacle in my mind. And this Cormac McCarthy is the guy that I think actually has that. And if you read blood Meridian, then there it is. Right. And I think what, what I find so gripping about it is, you know, I talked earlier about the darkness of the world. And this is a historical novel based on a group called the Glanton Gang that were killing Indians. And they ended up killing everybody. Uh, if you had black hair, your, your scalp was going to be taken. And that's what it's about. And it's completely epic. And, but it, but for me, it, it showed, it communicated to me the, a guy, Cormac McCarthy, was able to show the darkness in humanity. And there's nothing good about that. I mean, there's nothing pleasant in any way, shape, or form in that book. But that's in many ways the world that I lived in. Do you think there is, I, I struggle this, with this myself because part uh, that, and when I say struggle with, what am I struggling with? How much to voluntarily expose myself to darkness? Because I have sort of ups and downs that I contend with and a lot of people in my family just hereditarily deal with this. But I feel like on one hand, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. I don't want to... I don't want to just put on my rose-colored glasses and believe that everything is okay. Everyone has everyone else's best interests in mind, right? Because I've had uh, friends who've been kidnapped. Um, I've had uh, nothing that compares to what you've experienced, but I've seen enough glimpses of this like brutish uh, nastiness that on, on one hand, you know, I wonder as a civilian, should I not look at that stuff? Should I, should I try to shield myself, you know, develop a basic level of protection and, and skills, but otherwise shield myself from it because it's, it's not my job to have to look that in the face. And in fact, it will darken my view of humanity. Or should I really like stare it directly in the eyes and recognize it for what it is and become acquainted with it? And I don't know why I think about this as much as I do. Maybe it's because I, I have enough friends who've been in the military that it's, it's sometimes a topic of conversation, but what are your thoughts? I think that in order to truly experience the light and the bright, you have to see the darkness. And I think if you shield yourself from the darkness, you'll not appreciate and fully understand the beauty, 
the beauty of life. And again, you know, I go back to the sacrifices that I saw guys make on the battlefield and it's in the complete darkness of the world of the human soul. And you see that there's no, there's no, nothing brighter than somebody that lays down their life for their friends. And so I think if you want to understand the, the beauty and the glory of the life you have, it is good to know and understand that darkness. Yeah, that makes sense. What are, what are common mis, what are some of the most common misconceptions about, um, Navy SEALs or, and you you can pick whichever one you want to tackle. Um, what, what, um, inaccuracies bother you about, seals or the military for that matter that are common in movies. Well, one of the things that I, that I talk about when I talk to businesses, because businesses think that, um, you know, if you're a military guy, if, if you're, if you're, if Tim is military guy and I outrank you and I tell you to go do something, you're going to go do it with a big smile on your face and you're going to make it happen. And so that's the, that's the misconception. And if that was true, then military leadership would be the easiest form of leadership in the world because everyone would just obey your commands. Right. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Now, it would work if I outrank you and I tell you to clean the toilet. You go, okay, you outrank me and you go do it. But then you multiply the intensity there times infinite to where I'm telling you you need to go charge a machine gun nest and you're going to die if you do it. Are you going to listen to me? I wouldn't want to. You, You wouldn't want to and you may or may not. Right. You may or may not. And I need to be a leader. I need to actually be a leader to, if I'm going to get you to do stuff, I need, I need to lead you. I can't just order you to do it. So that's the biggest misconception is that, oh, if we're in the military and I order you to do something, you're going to have to do it. Now, again, you're not going to disobey the chain of command, but you know, there's stories of SEALs in Vietnam. So I've, many stories from SEALs in Vietnam that have told me, oh, they got tasked with a mission to go out and do X. And they looked at the mission and said, you know what? That doesn't make any sense. I'll tell you what, they'd go out, they'd go out patrol a hundred yards out, outside the wire, sit down in a little, uh, little rice paddy somewhere, wait two hours, come back and say, yeah, the target wasn't there or the ambush didn't happen or whatever. They would just blatantly, uh, disobey those. Not blatantly. They would surreptitiously, yes, yeah, surreptitiously disobey orders. So it's, that's, that's one of the, one of the big challenges. The, another thing I'll get is, you know, I'll meet with a CEO and he'll say, I, you know, I can't wait for you to get in here and whip my people into shape. So, you know, in their mind, they're thinking that if I come in and yell and scream drill and make people right. do pushups like a drill instructor, that that will somehow, you know, create a paradigm shift in the strategy <laughs> and the culture of their company. We both can laugh at that because it's completely false. And, you know, I think it, it, it comes very quickly as I start to talk to them about what's happening inside their company they realize that, you know, what we do from a leadership perspective is infinitely more about brains than it is about brawn. And the brawn stuff is from the movies and it does not work in reality. What, uh, when, when you mentioned the, the, uh, seals in Vietnam, you know, sitting right outside the tripwires or whatnot, made me think of band of brothers, uh, towards the end. Um, I don't know what your opinion is of that, um, that entire series, but awesome. 
I've, I've watched it multiple times. My mom, I grew up, my mom is very uh, fascinated by World War II. So letters from Iwo Jima and so on. So, she, so that fascination was passed on to me. Hardcore History is an amazing podcast for listening to, whether it's World War One or Genghis Khan or otherwise. But that's... Uh, I completely second that. Oh, so good. I tell people about it all the time. Yeah, Dan Carlin's amazing. Uh, but in, in Band of Brothers, you know, they, they were tasked with, I guess, a raid towards the end. It's like, we've we've already won this and this is for some type of guy is this for someone who wants a promotion back you know thousands of miles away and um so they made the decision you know to kind of sit it out uh i don't know why i felt compelled to share that i just i think that, i think the band of brothers for me more than anything else that i've observed gave me i felt like i had a window into sort of the pain and suffering and courage and sacrifice that was involved um, in a battle that, I, that is, I suppose, in many ways, very, very different from the insurgent uh, sort of counterinsurgency warfare in terms of terrain, right? I mean, when you have a bad guy like like Hitler, it seems like, uh, in retrospect, everyone's on your side. Right? But um, if, if somebody as a civilian wants to get a better understanding of the experiences that you've had, aside from the books you recommended, is there, uh, what what are other are there movies or documentaries that, that do it justice? Restrepo. Restrepo. Which I'm sure you've seen. I have seen. That's a heart-wrenching. It's unbelievable. There's a there's an hour-long, I think it's History Channel. It's actually called A Chance in Hell, The Battle for Ramadi, oh, which, is about, wow. which is about the battle for Ramadi. Uh, I, I like Band of Brothers. I love The Pacific. Did you see the Pacific? I've had it recommended to me multiple times. I mean, it's it's the Band of Brothers in the Pacific, so it's absolutely phenomenal. And I had read several of the books that uh, the Pacific is based on. Eugene Sledge, just you know, uh, I'd read his book with the old breed. Um, yeah, I'd read a bunch of those books, so I kind of knew and understood it. And and that's just a phenomenal, just a phenomenal epic story and it and it does you know it 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 got to me like when i was watching it i got that feeling you know that feeling i remember there's one scene where where they're walking you know they're walking through the jungle in some island in the pacific and nothing has happened yet and i had that feeling because it's just like the feeling you'd have in ramadi and you'd, you'd be walking down the street if no, if no shots had been fired yet it's this it's this feeling of of anticipation, but it's fear, it's anticipation, it's the unknown, and it's the waiting. Sounds eerie. It's the waiting for it to happen, and you know it's coming. And I got that feeling watching, you know, watching the Pacific, and that was in one of the early, early ones. And I said, "Wow, this is nailing it. Well done." Yeah, I have to watch that. That's been this is this is sort of the uh, definitely the the final push. I need to watch that. Um, what um, what would you put on a billboard if you get a if you get have one billboard anywhere? What would you put on it? You know, one of one of my one of my kind of, I guess my mantra is a very simple one, and that's discipline equals freedom. I've found that you know, as a as an individual, the more disciplined you are. And it's counterintuitive, right? The more disciplined you are, the more freedom you actually have. And 
you know, you and I both know if you wake up early, you, you get more done you and you end up with more free time. So the more you manage your time, the more disciplined you are with your time management, the more free time you end up having, mm-hmm. the more disciplined you are, you know, physically with your diet, with physically, the more freedom you have because you can do more stuff. You have more freedom. So the more disciplined you are, the more freedom you have. And what's interesting is how that transfers over to both military units and the civilian sector that, you know, imposing or, or when, when an element or when a unit or when a company is a disciplined group, they actually end up with more freedom. So, you know, I had a, a SEAL troop. We were highly disciplined. You know, we had standard operating procedures for just about everything that we did. And you'd think that that would restrain your creativity, but it actually doesn't. The more disciplined you are, the, the easier I could say, hey, you four, go take down that building. And they knew what to do because they were highly disciplined. I knew what they were going to do because they were highly disciplined. We understood what parameters they were going to stay within because we had standard operating procedures to follow. So that discipline both on an individual level and as a group equals freedom. And just like anything else with leadership, you can take that too far. You know, you can, you can discipline uh, an element or a person so much that they, they break down and they no longer have creativity. So just like the dichotomy of leadership, you can go too strong with discipline and they end up uh, breaking down or you can give them too much freedom and they break down in the other direction. Yeah, this is uh, this. I'm really glad that you, you mentioned that because I, um, I've realized in a way that my, when I struggle the most kind of existentially or, or really just creatively, it's when I have the fewest constraints. I want positive constraints. I need, uh, I need a, like a, I need boxes, not so that I have to stay within the box, but that I can start at least coloring inside the box. And, uh, that's part of the reason I'm, I've been so excited to adopt, you know, this, this rescue puppy, Molly, because it forces me to regiment and structure my day in such a way that I can then plan around fixed objects. And I think that whether it's in the military, at least in my experience in business, you want to reserve your creativity for the things that require creativity, not for what should I, what should the steps be when I'm doing uh, a room clearance? It's like, no, no, no. You want a standard operating procedure so that your brain cycles are allocated to the places where you need those brain cycles, right? That's a hundred percent right. And, uh, so I've realized in the last few months for myself that what I thought I wanted, right, which is freedom in the form of infinite options is not actually what I want at all. It's very stressful and you end up burning calories. You know, you burn 10 calories in a million directions. You're fatigued and you didn't get shit done. (laughs) And, uh, so I'm actually in a way trying to figure out how I can say no to a thousand things so that I can be fully creative on one or two things. And, um, it's just, it's, it's part of the reason I enjoy doing this podcast so much is that when you talk to people who've operated at the highest levels in any field, this kind of stuff comes up. And after a while, it's like Ferris idiot. (laughs) Do you get the message yet? You've heard meditation from 80% of the people who've been on your podcast. Maybe you should chill the fuck out and like sit down for 20 minutes every morning. Uh, but the, the, uh, I want to talk about ownership and, uh, could you explain your book and why you decided to write it? So first of all, while I was still in the SEAL teams, you know, I had guys cause they, they, once everyone knew I was getting out, 
I had guys saying, Hey, you know, you need to write this stuff down. You need to pass on these lessons learned. And, you know, I did that in a, uh, in almost a doctrinal way. And I captured those lessons learned and, and passed those on. And then when I started working with civilian companies, you know, Leif and I, my, my business partner, we'd started hearing the same thing, which is, Hey, do you guys have a reference? Can we, you know, what if we want to hand out some stuff to the rest of our people that couldn't make this and Hey, you guys really changed the way this group is operating. We want to spread that to the rest of our groups. Do you have a book we can give them? Do you have reference material? And, you know, eventually we said, okay, we, we need to write something. And so, you know, from, from my perspective, this is, uh, an opportunity for us to pass on the lessons that we learned and relearned that have been, you know, some of them, some of the, some of the lessons we learned and and talk about have been around for thousands of years. And some of them were, were discovered a little bit more recently, but they are definitely solid and they've been very well tested in a variety of environments, starting with the harshest environment of them all, which is sustained violent urban combat. And then they've, we've brought them to dozens and dozens of companies and we keep hearing the same thing, which is these work. What, what's the explanation behind the title? Actually came from an email that I sent to a, uh, you know, a group, uh, a manager in a company. And, and the email basically said, we, when I was in the SEAL teams and I was a troop commander, so I was in charge of task unit bruiser and we were getting ready to go on deployment. And occasionally the Commodore, which is a couple ranks above my boss, actually one rank above my boss is a guy named the Commodore, which is, you know, a, a full bird Colonel. If you're in the Marine Corps or the army, and he's kind of in charge of all the SEAL teams on the West coast. And so he would have occasional meetings where he'd bring in us, the troop commanders. And we're like the frontline guys. And this is West coast of the U S West coast of the U S and the story that I told in this email was that he would go around the room because he wants to get some direct feedback from the troops and he'd ask somebody, you know, okay, what do you need? And these guys are my peers. And, you know, someone would say, well, you know, the boots that we have are okay in the hot weather, but we're getting ready to be in a cooler environment. We need new boots. Uh, and we need them by this date because that's our, our next training block. Okay, got it. And you get to the next person and say, you know, when we're out at the desert training facility, there's no Wi-Fi internet, so our guys are disconnected, and, you know, we really need to get Wi-Fi out there. Okay, got it. And the next guy would say, we need more helicopter training support because we don't feel like we're working around helicopters enough, and we really need that. And eventually, he'd get to me. And he'd, you know, Commodore would say, Jocko, what do you need? And I would say, we're good, sir. And I, I was stating the obvious, which is if I have problems, I'm going to handle them and I'm going to take care of them. and I'm not going to complain. I, I took extreme ownership of my world. And the way that worked twofold was when I did need something, it, number one, it was something significant. It was something real. And when I told the Commodore, Hey boss, we need this right here. I, I would almost get it instantaneously because he knew that I really truly needed it. And so I had written this kind of told that story and, and talked about extreme ownership and to, and owning everything in your world. Cause the other piece of that is you, you complain, you know, people complain, they place blame on other people. And finally, you know, if your boss 
If Tim's boss isn't giving you the support you need, whose fault is that? Mm. Whose fault is it? If your boss is not giving you what you need, whose fault is that? I suppose it's my fault. Plenty of people, plenty of people will say, well, it's my boss's fault. Mm. No, it's actually your fault because you haven't educated them. You haven't influenced them. You haven't, you haven't explained to them in a manner that they understand why you need this support that you need. And so that's extreme ownership. That's where the title came from. Or you've made them like, like you, uh, I suppose alluded to, um, you've made them, uh, immune to your requests because you're the boy who cries wolf exactly and if you're constantly needy they will determine that nothing is important or or it's not a real urgent important request yep. um, and that that really i mean that's extreme ownership in a nutshell is you're taking responsibility for everything in your world and there's no one else to blame and when we do talk about bosses you know i i, I tell this to people all the time because you know i always hear complain about people's bosses and i tell people that I worked for every different type of boss you could imagine, you know, superb tactical geniuses that were incredible leaders of men. And I've worked for people that didn't know anything and were horrible. And I had the same relationship with all of them, which is I built up trust with them so that they trusted that I was going to do the right thing. And they gave me the support I needed. And that's a, that's a, I took ownership of those relationships to make sure that that was always the case. And that's another piece that I, you know, if you have a problem with your boss, it's not your boss's fault. It's your fault. And obviously it's the same thing down the chain of command as well. Mm -hmm. What, what are some of the principles, uh, or lessons that the companies you've worked with have found most valuable? Well, cover and move is a big one. Cover and move. Cover and move. So if you and I were going to attack a building across the street where there was enemy, uh, I would get in a window here and I would start shooting at them. Covering fire. Covering fire. And you would move. When you heard me shooting, you would start to move and you'd find a better tactical position. And then once you got in a better tactical position, you would start shooting. And I would move. And eventually, we would get to a position where we could kill the enemy and take down the building. So that's called cover and move. And honestly, when I started talking to companies, I said to myself, well, how do I translate an actual gunfighting tactic? Right? That's, that's all it is, a gunfighting tactic. How do you translate that to, to a company, to a business? And as soon as I started talking to you know, businesses, uh, I, I mean, the first business I talked to, I realized that, guess what? Every single business has multiple different elements within it, whether it's, you know, you've got an operational group, you've got a manufacturing group, you've got a sales group. And guess what? All those elements have absolutely got to work together, cover and move for each other. Because if I'm the sales guy and I sell something and you're the manufacturer and you don't manufacture it in time or it's faulty or whatever, that we fail. Right. We fail. Right. And if you manufacture a bunch of perfect units and I can't sell any of them, guess what? We fail. Right. So that that's a huge one that, that people really grab onto because just about every company experiences some need to cover and move. And, uh, there, there's so many maxims that are memorable, um, from the military. I mean, one that I only got exposed to a few days ago and you mentioned it when we got started right here, um, was, you know, the fact that I have, I have two recorders and, uh, so what is, what is the expression? Cause I, 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 I was trained very early on 
to think about single points of failure, actually in my first job, which was mass data storage. So you always want redundancy. They're all about redundancy, whether that's, you know, a RAID array, uh, or, or anything else. You don't want a single point of failure. So what, what was the expression that you used again? Two is one and one is none. So it just means have a backup. It means have a backup. Yeah. If you only have one of something, it's going to disappear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <sure> will. <laughs> and the, the structure of the book, uh, I really like. And, um, you know, I spoke with, with Pete about this is so it can you describe it because it seems like every chapter has a story from combat that reflects a principle then you explain the principle and then you use a business story to show how that translates exactly right and uh what is your what do you think is a part of the book that people might not pay enough attention to that they should pay more attention to because i know there are aspects i'll just for instance like in the in the uh Four-hour chef, I'll give an example. People focus, when I'm talking about an accelerated learning framework, they're like, okay, deconstruction, got it. Selection, you know, doing the 80-20 analysis, got it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sequencing, cool, got it. And then stakes, setting up consequences, they kind of gloss over it. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you don't have a sufficient incentive, like a punishment or reward, all that other stuff, the how-to stuff, doesn't matter, right? But but they gloss over it, and I think I take responsibility for that. Like maybe I didn't highlight the importance enough. But what are what are areas of the book or chapters, anything that comes to mind where you're like, you know what, people might gloss over this or pay less attention to it than they should? Well, I think I don't know if this will answer your question, but what's been interesting on the feedback we've gotten is we we have different people find different chapters they, they latch onto different chapters and so there's even chapters where we, we you know we said hey you know maybe we should take this chapter out i don't know about this chapter or that chapter and we even got some feedback said oh take this chapter out and literally would get someone saying hey the best chapter is the chapter that someone else told us to take out so i i think that people are going to identify very easily what relates to them and, you know, there'll be a high point of this completely relates to me. And then there'll be some other ones. Oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Not as much because of, you know, maybe that's a, 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 a skill area that they have. So they don't they don't really need to work on that. But that's what I've, I've found most interesting is that the variety of answers when people people like the different sections and and they get something out of the out of the various chapters. That's a that's a really that's a really good sign, by the way. Uh, and I know we're, we're chatting. Um about this book and uh, I'm excited to see what it does in the wild. The, uh, what I've noticed for, you know, the, the books that I've written, which are way, way too long for any sane person to write them. Reading is a different story because it's going to be like a choose your own adventure book. But when I've done proofreading and I've had friends read the rule that I've decided on is to remove something, you need a consensus to keep something. You only need one person to love it. So if I have one person who says, I love this part, it doesn't matter if nine out of 10 people say I hate it, it stays in. That's, uh, a, good, that's a good rule. And uh, because you don't need a book, everything in a book to apply to every person. It's just like if you had a commanding officer, not everything that person would say would equally apply to you if they're, if they're dealing with groups as you have dealt with groups and teams. Uh, so that's a very promising sign. Uh, There's so many questions I could ask you. I don't even know where to start. Let me uh, let me take a quick glance at a few things here uh, because I know we want to grab some food in not not too sh- not too short order. Uh, 
Jocko hungry. Jocko hungry. Jocko smash. <laughs> I don't want Jocko to smash me because I would be helpless. Uh, what do you talk to about SEALs more versus civilians? As opposed to, I mean, obviously you have the, the, the camaraderie and common background of, uh, the, the warfare experience, right? But aside from trading those stories, uh, what do you tend to talk to SEALs about more versus civilians? Straight to the point, when you're, t- when I, when I go and talk to SEALs, I spend time, a little more time talking about, well, number one, I talk about the tactics, like the, the actual on the ground tactics of what was happening. And that's, that's valuable lessons learned. Another thing that I talk about in depth is around the piece of risk mitigation. Mm. Now, as you know, in the business world, risk mitigation is huge. And as a matter of fact, the first time I ever spent the day with a CEO and he said, well, what do you think of this stuff? And I said, well, it's kind of like what I used to do, risk mitigation. But when you're talking about your guys getting killed, it's a whole nother ball game. And I remember a, a conversation I had with my commanding officer. And so this is the type of thing that I would tell SEALs. We're not on deployment yet, so we're still back in America, and my commanding officer brings me in, and he says, hey, Jocko, you know, he knew we were going to Ramadi. He knew Ramadi was really bad, and he said, before you go on any operation, I want you to think about if it is worth, if it is worth the risk of losing one of your guys, and I said to him, sir, I... I don't need to think about that. I can tell you right now, there's no operation you can give me, you can task me with that is, I would trade one of my guys for not going to happen. That being said, we are going to on deployment to Iraq. We have a mission and we have a job and we have a duty to execute that mission. And we will take risks and we'll do everything we can to mitigate those risks. But if we're going to take zero risks, then we might as well just stay here in San Diego, California. So that's the kind of thing I think that, you know, cause people can be very risk averse, even in the military, uh, it can get very, very risk averse and it's, and it's understandable, you know, it's understandable that you say, look, what is what's, is this worth the risk or not? And my point always was you have to just mitigate the risks as much as you can, but there are going to be risks you, you're going to have to deal with. Absolutely. Well, in a military context, I mean, it seems like a huge risk is not making a decision, which is a decision in and of itself. Uh, and when I look at say, you know, the layered Hamiltons of the world, uh, there's an incredible big wave surfer or some of these, uh, just interviewed Jimmy Chin, who's, uh, one of the key climbers. I mean, he's effectively a professional athlete in this documentary called Meru, which is about this, uh, the shark's fin. And I, th- I want to say it's India, but it might be Pakistan. This, this rock face that has defeated the world's best climbers for 30 years. Um, they are all people view all of these people as massive risk takers. And when you actually sit down and talk to these guys, you realize they are expert risk mitigators. And, uh, and I think it's very easy to mis- 
come to the mistaken conclusion in business, for example, that you only win big if you bet the farm. And in fact, when I talk to some of these companies here in Silicon Valley, for instance, that have uh, become worth billions and billions of dollars, uh, some rightly, some maybe in the uh, irrational exuberance of our current day, but many, I think, rightly so, uh, you see that, in my experience, in no cases have they bet the farm. They have evaluated the downside. They've real. They've tried to measure the maximum allowable downside. They know not only kind of their bet and their bet size, but when they're going to fold. Uh, they have an exit strategy for for minimizing or capping losses. And unfortunately, I think that the the kind of renegade risk taker gets romanticized in a lot of different spheres, including business, and they get the magazine covers in some cases because it makes for a good story. But there's a huge survivorship bias, right? Because you don't get to see, you know, the the nine out of ten who tried the same excessively ballsy move and got their balls chopped off. You don't they don't make it to the, the magazine cover. I often talk about the fact I'll get up and brief a bunch of missions that we did, you know. And and when when I get done, I'll be saying, you know, I didn't brief you guys on any missions that we didn't do. You know, there was missions, plenty of missions that we looked at. We weighed the risk versus the reward. And we said, you know what? Not worth the risk. And so we did the exact same thing. I think you're 100% right. It's a, it's a very high level risk mitigation is, is the same in business and in combat. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I remember hearing an expression, I don't know who to attribute this to, but it's like, if you cap your downside, the upside takes care of itself. Um, and I'm not sure if that applies in every circumstance, but it's a, might not be a perfect guideline, but it's a helpful guideline where it's like, if you take enough shots and you've constantly capped your downside, if you have a couple of outliers that give you disproportionate upside in the long run, I mean, you're going to average out ahead and beat most people, especially the people who are cavalier. Um, Who's the who's a historical figure that you identify with, if any? You know, I talked about David Hackworth, and I definitely, uh, definitely identify. Or I, I would, you know, I look up to him. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I didn't, you know, he became, you know, uh, a peace guy. I mean, that's, that's where he ended up was living in Australia as a, you know, premier leading the pack on, you know, anti-nuclear weapons. So it's, it's, you know, it's not, not your average guy, a historical figure. It's a tough question. I'm not sure what my answer would be. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with Hackworth. All right. Hackworth it is. What is something most people would be surprised to know about you? Again, I think it's the, uh, the same thing I talked about earlier with the fact that they expect, you know, I, I have a certain look to me, you might say, um, that I look like, you know, kind of a serial killer combined <laughs> with, you know, some kind of a psychopathic, uh, steroid mutant. And, and, you know, so people I think have a little, you saw my text to my girlfriend. <laughs> I was just trying to prepare. <laughs> I, I think, uh, there's some kind of surprise, 
Yeah. I think when people hear me string a sentence together and say, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I think that's surprising to a lot of people. <laughs> Makes me think of this comedian, Jim Gaffigan, really funny guy, who's like, uh, you know, he's talking about how attractive people have it really easy because he's like, and then there's a beautiful woman and she has a book and people are like, ooh, she's beautiful and she can read. Double threat. <laughs> but uh, no, you're, you're very good at stringing senses together. Uh, do you have any bad habit or bad habits that you're working to overcome? Bad habits. Hmm. Let me, I can rephrase non ideal habits or what are you trying to improve about yourself? I'm trying to improve everything all the time. I mean, that's a much easier question because, because I want to be faster, stronger, more limber, uh, smarter, quicker, wittier, always everything always trying to improve. So if you, if you were to prioritize those currently, let's just say over the next 12 months, which are the areas that you're hoping to most, uh, push into overdrive or improve upon? You know, I think I literally wake up every day and I'm trying to do all those things. I, I don't know how I'd prioritize them, which, and, and the reason I think is because they're not mutually exclusive. Right. You know, one right. of my, one of my, one of my laws of combat is prioritize and execute, which means if you've got multiple problems going on, if you try and handle them all at once, you will absolutely fail. So prioritize and execute. You look at what problems you have. You pick the most impactful one or the biggest threat and you solve that one. And then you move on to the next one and the next one and so forth. But, you know, I can definitely read and work out and stretch all in the same day. These are not mutually exclusive <laughs> things and, and I'll, I'll do them all. You, well, you're right. And I mean, it, it, I guess it is in a way kind of, it could be viewed as a trick question. I was reading, uh, a number of transcribed lectures by Krishnamurti and he talked about, and I'm, I'm probably butchering this by paraphrasing it, but the fact that people talk about start, you know, changing one small thing at a time. And I do think there's a place for that in behavioral change. Um, and certainly applies to things like dog training or human training, <laughs> uh, you know, operant conditioning, classical conditioning and blah, 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 shaping and all that. But there are cases where the, every, the elements are so intertwined, you can't change one without changing all the others. Uh, and, uh, so you do have to kind of, you know, try to, you know, you can't eat the elephant in one small bite at a time. You have to try to eat the whole fucking elephant. Um, all right. Let me ask a couple of cheesy questions just because I just because I'm I'm feeling the spirit move me here. Um, you walk into a bar. What do you order from the bartender? Water. Water. Do you not drink alcohol? Nope. You do not. No caffeine or very limited caffeine. No alcohol. What other th What other things? Um, are there any other things you abstain from that would surprise people? Perhaps. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, what do you listen to? What type of music do you listen to when working out? So I, I grew up listening to heavy metal and hardcore music. Mm -hmm. uh, primarily Black Sabbath was kind of my indoctrination into Good that choice. world. Good choice. I remember one of my buddies growing up, you know, he's was praising Black Sabbath and he said, you know, music throughout the throughout the history of the world has been meant to, you know, make people feel better and bring them joy. And black Sabbath has absolutely nothing to do with that. <laughs> I think that's 
you know, that darkness, again, you know, we going back to that theme of darkness. And I think that Black Sabbath was the first group that I heard that I said, that's what I feel. What is that? And I, and I latched onto it. And, you know, from then I started saying, what's harder, what's darker than that. And, you know, I ended up listening to a lot of hardcore. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Black Flag. Oh yeah. Black Flag. Black Flag, My War, Side 2, which if you, if you listen to Black, Black Flag, you'll, and even, even me when I was growing up, I thought, yeah, these guys are okay, whatever, no big deal, punk rock. But you get to my war side too, and there was a paradigm shift, and it was a completely new thing. And that was another, I, I had Black Flag, my war side too, on my record player for, you know, maybe even a year where that's just what I listened to. So, you know, that, um, and then, you know, again, a lot of the hardcore stuff that I grew up listening to, I still listen to that today. It's still, you know, on my, on my iPhone and what I plug into, uh, if I was to say some of the more modern music that I listen to, I'd, I'd throw out the white Buffalo, the white Buffalo. Yeah. Who's, uh, great, just an incredible, uh, incredible musician. And what's incredible about him is he's, he writes songs and sings songs that have impact and leave a mark. And he's an, he plays acoustic guitar, and uh, it's it's not heavy metal by any stretch of the imagination, but it is hard and it is raw, and it is true. Well, and one of the few concerts I've seen in the last ten years has been White Buffalo, White Buffalo, White Buffalo, and White Buffalo. So I've seen him a bunch of times. Every time he comes around, I go and see him. I'll have to check that out. White Buffalo. I, I won't even get into it, but very interesting mythological uh, or sort of traditional Native American associations with the white buffalo also. People can Google that and check it out. But that's you can you can go deep looking into the, the stories associated with the white buffalo also. Uh, just a few more questions. If you could give yourself, your 25-year-old self advice, what would it be? Yeah, so I'm 25 years old. I'm at SEAL Team 1, and I need to know that you don't know everything. <laughs> and, and, and right now I, I know that right now that I don't know everything and I still have a ton to learn. And it's like, kind of like, again, we'll go back to jujitsu, but I told that story earlier when I first learned a couple basic moves, I thought I knew jujitsu. I thought it was good. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. And then, you know, now, and you know, I've been training for 20 something years and I know that I, there's still tons. I, I know, I, I don't know a quarter of what I need to know, a tenth of what I need to know. And it's the same thing with everything in life. You know, you're gonna, you've got to have an open mind. You've got to be ready to learn all the time and always, always be seeking out that knowledge because it doesn't just smack you. You know, you've got to seek it out and talk to people and, and that's how you learn and get smarter. What, uh, how, how old are you now? If you don't mind me asking, I'm 44, 44. What about your 35 year old self? So now I'm, I'm in Ramadi and looking back now, I would say relish that moment, which I did, but I would say relish that moment. Jocko, this has been fascinating and a real honor. I appreciate you taking the time. Where can people... 
uh, find more about you, about the book, about your company? Where can they? Uh, where are the best places to visit you? And everybody listening, of course, the the links and so on to everything we talked about in this discussion will be at uh, Four Hour Workweek, all spelled out. Fourhourworkweek.com, and just click on podcast. But uh, where can people find more about you and your work online? So we have a Facebook for the book that's coming out. Extreme Ownership is, is where you can find that on Facebook. We have a Twitter for Extreme Ownership as well. And Leif and I are both uh, extremely uh, inept <laughs> at, at social media. So it's uh, we're, we're, we're trying to make some improvements there. And as we, as we get people interested, we'll do more. And, you know, I have, I actually have a Twitter account. I think I've posted one Twitter statement. Yeah. It's kind of weird. You know, I, I always feel like I, I never liked people that just like talked for no reason. Right. And, and I kind of get the feeling when you're posting something on Twitter, you're kind of talking for no reason. Yeah. And so I don't know, maybe as people start to ask me questions on Twitter yeah. and now I have a conversation because to just sit there and talk yeah. feels awkward to me and, yeah. and not right. To describe the burrito you just had to perfect strangers on the internet. I will, I'll tell you what I'll do after we get off. I'll show you how I use Twitter for extremely fast information gathering and polling. And I think you'll find that interesting. I'm sure there are some very practical applications. So guys, I will link to all of this. Uh, website is, I always mispronounce this. Is it echelon or echelon? It's actually echelon, echelon, E C H E L O N front.com. And I will link to all this stuff, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, follow Jocko so that he is forced to interact <laughs> on Twitter, which is the sort of the the antithesis of <laughs> the act more, talk less ethos that I so respect. But I, I will show him some interesting ways to implement it at Jocko Willink. So on Twitter at J O C K O W I L L I N K, and uh, Extreme Ownership will also be on Twitter and Facebook. I'll link to all this stuff. But uh, that will be in the show notes. And Jocko, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. All right, man. We'll get some food and uh, to be continued. So guys, let us know what you thought. Uh, Check out the book. You should really check out the book, Extreme Ownership. I've been reading it. And very highly actionable. Very easy to digest. You have lessons wrapped into stories. So you have some some, some sugar coating that will help compel this and propel this into your brain so you can actually use this information and uh, as always thank you for listening until next time learn experiment test and educate yourself this episode is brought to you by 99designs your one-stop shop for all things graphic design related I've used 99designs for everything from banner ads to book covers, including sketches and mock-ups that led to the 4-Hour Body, which later became number one New York Times, number one Wall Street Journal. And the brainstorming, a lot of it took place with designers from around the world. And here's how it works. Whether you need a t-shirt, a business card, a website, an app thumbnail, whatever it might be, you submit that project and designers from around the world will send you sketches and mock-ups and designs. You choose your favorite and you have an original that you love or you get your money back. It's that straightforward. And many of you who are listening have already used it and created some amazing things that I'll be sharing in the future. But in the meantime, if you want to see some of my competitions, some of the book covers, 
as well as get a free $99 upgrade, go to 99designs.com forward slash Tim. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront, and this is a very unique sponsor. Wealthfront is a massively disruptive, in a good way, set it and forget it investing service led by technologists from places like Apple and world famous investors. It has exploded in popularity in the last two years, and they now have more than two and a half billion dollars under management. In fact, some of my very good friends, investors in Silicon Valley have millions of their own money in Wealthfront. So the question is why? Why is it so popular? Why is it unique? Because you can get services previously reserved for the ultra wealthy, but only pay pennies on the dollar for them. And this is because they use smarter software instead of retail locations, bloated sales teams, etc. And I'll come back to that in a second. I suggest you check out wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. Take the risk assessment quiz, which only takes two to five minutes, and they'll show you for free exactly the portfolio they put you in. And if you just want to take their advice, run with it, do it yourself, you can do that. Or as I would, you can set it and forget it. And here's why. The value of Wealthfront is in the automation of habits and strategies that investors should be using on a regular basis, but normally aren't. Great investing is a marathon, not a sprint, and little things that you may or may not be familiar with, like automatic tax loss harvesting, rebalancing your portfolio across more than 10 asset classes, and dividend reinvestment add up to very large amounts of money over longer periods of time. Wealthfront, as I mentioned, since it's using software instead of retail locations, etc., can offer all of this at low costs that were previously completely impossible. Right off the bat, you never pay commissions or account fees. For everything, they charge 0.25% per year on assets above the first 15,000, which is managed for free if you use my link, wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. That is less than $5 a month to invest a $30,000 account, for instance. Now, normally when I have a sponsor on this show, it's because I use them and recommend them. In this case, it's a little different. I don't use Wealthfront yet because I'm not allowed to. Here's the deal. They wanted to sponsor this podcast, but because of SEC regulations, companies that invest your money are not allowed to use client testimonials. So I couldn't be a user and have them on the podcast. But I've been so impressed by Wealthfront that I've invested a significant amount of my own money, at least for me, uh, in the team and the company itself. So I am an investor and hope to soon use it as a client. Now back to the recommendation. As a Tim Ferriss Show listener, you'll get $15,000 managed for free if you decide to open an account. But just start with seeing the portfolio that they would suggest for you. Take two minutes, fill out their questionnaire at wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. It's fast. It's free. There's no downside that I can think of. Now, I do have to read a mandatory disclaimer. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Investing in securities involves risks, and there's the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. So check it out, guys. This is one of the hottest, most innovative companies coming out of Silicon Valley, and they're killing it. They've become massively popular. Just take a look, see what portfolio they would create for you, and you can use that information however you want. Wealthfront.com forward slash Tim. And until next time, thank you for listening. 